Welcome to the Third Road Tesla Podcast. My name is Safian Fraval, and today we have a very special guest. But before I introduce our special guest, I'm going to go through and introduce our crew. So our regular Third, third Road Tesla Podcast crew. So today we have Omar Kazi, Tesla Truth. Boom. <laughs> and we have Kristen from Hi. K10. <laughs> Thank you. And we got Vincent Yu from Tesmanian. Hi. All right, great. And then we got Galileo Russell from Hyperchange. What up, third row? And then we got Viv, for, who's uh, Falcon Heavy. Hey. Great. All right, Omar, do you want to introduce our guest? Please welcome the inventor of the car fart, Elon Musk. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> please put that on my gravestone. <laughs> Love it. So, yeah, it's kind of crazy that we're actually all here. And um, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, you're welcome. We're all Tesla customers, fans, and... It's really good that it's finally happening. And I remember um, that I was looking at your Wikipedia tweet. Um, that it's like this bizarre, fictionalized version of reality. Yeah. And uh, I replied to him, like, why don't you come on a podcast and like tell your fictionalized version of reality? Sure, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell my fictionalized version. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you replied, okay, sure. And I was kind of like taken by surprise by that. And um, you know, the way you engage and listen to your customers online, yeah. it's like, I've never seen anything like that from, you know, CEO of a public company or sure. any executive. So can you tell us a little bit where that came from, why you communicate directly instead of like having this PR strategy that most companies have? Sure. Um, well, I mean, it started out, I actually had one of the very, very first Twitter accounts, like when it was like less than 10,000 uh, people. And, I th and, and then everyone was tweeting at me, like, what kind of latte they had at Starbucks. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, well, this seems like the silliest thing ever. <laughs> so I deleted my Twitter account, and then <clears throat> uh, someone else took it over and started tweeting in my name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then a couple of uh, friends of mine, um, well, Lee and Jason Calacanis, said, they both said, hey, you should really use Twitter to get your message out. Um, and also some somebody's tweeting in your name and they're saying crazy things. So I was like, I'll say crazy things in my name. Uh, <laughs> Did you have to pay them? No, no, they, 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 they um, I, I'm not sure who it was, but it was for some reason, I, I don't know, I got my account back. Great. And, um, and, and then I was just, I don't know, to some degree it's like uh, just sort of, I just started tweeting for fun really. And my, my early tweets were quite crazy. Uh, as I was trying to explain, like it has the arc of insanity is is short uh, in that it's not very steep because it started off insane, <laughs> and so if it's still insane, it's you know it hasn't changed that much. Um, so um, yeah, and, and I don't know. It, it seemed it seemed kind of fun to. You know, as I think I've said this before, it's like, you know, some people use their hair to express myself, I use Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you like Twitter so much? I mean, you could use Instagram, as for example. As opposed to other platforms. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, like, I don't trust Facebook, obviously, you know, and... and <laughs> And then Instagram is is fine, but it's I, I think not exactly my style. Um, it's hard to convey a, a, a sort of intellectual arguments on Instagram. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard on Twitter too, but it's uh, but you can't uh, you know it's so Instagram is also owned by Facebook, and so I was like, eh. <laughs> you know, um, deleted. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. Just leave it at 20. It's like, I don't really need to just, if I need to say something, I only really need to say it on one platform pretty much. And, um, so, and, and so if I'm trying and, and I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on social media. So it's just like, okay, I'll, if, if people want to know what I'm saying, then they can just sort of go to Twitter and I'll just keep doing that as long as Twitter is good, I suppose, more good than bad. Um, yeah. Crypto scammers are really... <laughs> <laughs> I understand that. They've been yeah. taking advantage of Vincent recently. Yeah, I know. Really? Yeah, yeah. there's like 10 Vincents out there. <laughs> oh, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, they totally they yeah. copy everything and just like change one Yeah, they thing. use my avatars and then the picture and then they just post like right below yeah. your tweet, you know? Yeah, yeah. I was like, wow. Yeah. And they blocked me too. We fight them all all, to- all the time. We're always like reporting them. Like every day we report like every 10 day, people. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I have so many like, yeah, exactly. Conversations on Twitter, like, come on, <laughs> can you just like? I think it would take like three or four customer service people to just mm-hmm. look look at this. It's crypto scam. Block it. Yeah, it should be easy. It should be easy. It should be. Easy. Um, but then, like, my wife, Vegan Shelley, I think you liked her tweet the other day. Um, she got banned for like replying to one of your tweets and quoting like the video inside of it. And then she got suspended for like a day or something. And I was like, what the heck <laughs> is, is going strange. on? Yeah. yeah. So it's just weird how the algorithm works. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's a lot of manipulation. But, you know, going back to the Wikipedia page, you know, it's kind of interesting. Just sure. what a decade you've had. I remember I was reading somebody's article. I think they interviewed you in 2009 or something like that. And they said, you know, if you had met Elon Musk in 2009, right after the recession, they're like struggling with the roadster. You know, you never would have thought that. You are where you are today. You're, you know, launching astronauts into space. We will be, hopefully. Well, yeah. yeah, this year, you know, servicing the International Space Station. I mean, Tesla with the Model 3, the Model Y, you know, electrification really. Yeah. Without Tesla, it would not be where it is today. You see where the other legacy automakers are. They're not doing great. So, you know, looking at kind of like this like you've, you've become this legendary figure and looking at kind of like how people kind of see you kind of the Ashley Vance biography or Wikipedia page what is it that really kind of sticks out to you or you know makes you laugh like that's just completely <laughs> off base yeah um well I think I, I mentioned that the that uh, I kept getting referred to as an investor in, yeah. in like a bunch of things and it's like but I actually don't invest really, except in companies that I help create. So I only have the only publicly traded share that I have at all is Tesla. I have no diversity uh, on, on publicly traded shares. Just like us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, nothing. So, um, and um, you know that's quite unusual. So uh, you know, almost everyone diversifies to some degree. Um, and then the only stock that I have of significance outside of Tesla is SpaceX, which is privately, which is a private, you know, private corporation. Um, and, um, and and then <clears throat> in order to uh, um, get liquidity, which is mostly to reinvest in SpaceX and Tesla, um, and occasionally in like uh, pro- provide funding for sm- much smaller projects like Neuralink and Boring Company, uh, then I'll I'll actually take out loans against. The Tesla and SpaceX stock. Um, so, the 
So what so what I actually have is is whatever the, my Tesla and SpaceX stock is, and then there's about a billion dollars of debt against mm-hmm. that. So, um, which you know, it's it's this is sort of taken to imply that I'm claiming that I have no money, which I'm not claiming. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm it's it's something to make it clear that you'll see some like number some big number in like Forbes or something people will think I have the, te- the Tesla and SpaceX stock and I have the cash Mm-mm. and I'm being somehow just, I'm just sitting on the cash yeah. doing nothing <laughs> and like hoarding resources I'm like <laughs> no it's, it's you know the only alternative would be to say okay let's give the stock to the government or something and then the government would be running things and the, the government just is not good at running things that's the main thing um, but there's like like a fundamental Sort of a question of like consumption versus capital allocation. Um, this is probably gonna get me into trouble, but uh, the, the the paradigm of say com- communism versus capitalism, I think, is fundamentally um, sort of orthogonal to the reality of uh, of, of, of of actual economics in in, in some ways. So. Uh, what you actually care about is like the responsiveness of the feedback loops to the maximizing the happiness of the population. Um, and if if more resources are controlled by entities that have poor response in their feedback loops, so if, if it's like a monopoly corporation or a small oligopoly, or in the limit, I would say the a monopolistic corporation in the limit is the government. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just it's it's. This is not to say if people who work at the government are bad. If those if those same people are taken and put in a, in a better sort of operating system situation, the outcome will be much better. Um, so, it's really just what is the responsiveness of the organization to maximizing the happiness of the people, um, and um, and and so you want to have a, a competitive situation where it's truly competitive. Uh, where companies aren't gaming the system, um, and uh, and then where the rules are set correctly, um, and and then you need to be on the alert for regulatory capture, where the the referees are in fact captured by the players, um, which is you know and and the the players should not control the referees, you know essentially, like, which which can happen, um, you know I think like that happened for example with uh, I think the zero emission vehicle mandate in in California. Uh, where um, California was like really strict on EVs, and then they the, the car companies managed to sort of, frankly, in my view, tr- trick the uh, regulators into into saying, okay, you don't you don't need to be so hardcore about the EVs, and instead you say say fuel cells of the future, mm-hmm. but fuel cells are of course many years away, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> forever. <laughs> so then, so then they let up the let the the rules, and then. You know, GM recalled the EV1 and crushed them in, in, in exactly. like yeah. a junkyard, which awful. is against the wishes of the yeah. owner. I mean, they they uh, all lined up to buy them, and they wouldn't let them buy them. Uh, well, I mean, Chris Payne did this great documentary on it, and yeah. it's like the you know the, the owners of the of the EV1, which by the way wasn't actually that great of a car, but they still wanted the electric car so bad mm-hmm. that they held a candlelit vigil at the junkyard where their cars were crushed. Oh wow! It, like like it was like a like a prisoner being executed or something like that. 
Yeah. That was literally, I know. And, and like, so when painful. is the last time you even heard of that for a product? Right. You know, GM is stops the product. I mean, what? <laughs> I, I mean, listen, man, they're not doing that for any other GM product. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Have you thought about doing the EV2? <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah. it's, it's kind of sometimes hard to get through these guys, you know? So, anyway, I think that's a very important thing. Um, so generally, we could see like these oligopolies forming, uh, or uh, duopolies, the, the, um, and then you get effective price fixing, and then they, they cut back on the R and D budget. Like a, a kind of a silly one, frankly, is like like candy. Like there's a there's a candy oligopoly, <laughs> and it's like when's the we don't see much innovation in candy. So you're still working on the candy company. Crypto candy, is that? No. <laughs> boring candy. Boring candy. The boring it's candy. It's going to be boring candy. I, don't, I haven't seen a candy yet that's good enough to <laughs> send out. But, um, and it's, yeah. Uh, but I, th- I think it, it's, it's there's, there's like three companies or something that control all the candy in the world pretty much. It's crazy. Uh, and dog food. <laughs> yeah. There's somebody constructed like this, it's this, crazy conglomerate and and it's like and it's like dog food and baby food and candy and it's like all you know other brands a rendering yeah and you, hundreds of brands yeah you think you're buying from different companies but yeah. it all funnels up to like three companies wow. or something like that don't send the rendering food to the candy company <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah big candy <laughs> so you, you want to have like a good competitive forcing function so that uh, you have to make the product better uh, or or you'll lose. Like if you don't make the product better and, and, and improve the product for the end consumer, then, then that company should have relatively less prosperity compared to a company that makes better products. Um, now, now the car industry, you know, is, is actually pretty competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's good. Um, and uh, and, but and so then the, but the, the good thing about a competitive comp- industry is then if, if you make a, a product that's better, it's going to do better in the marketplace. Mm. Definitely. So well, this is Gene Wilder's old house. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. That's I amazing. Photos over there. It's it's lovely. Thanks for having us here yeah, as well. Thank it's you. Really special. Yeah, it's a it's a cool spot. Yeah. And it's got a solar glass roof. Yeah. Oh, you, do you see that? Portion yeah. two, right? We didn't notice it, but yes. we checked it out the second time. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for my uh, three, so I, I'm waiting for version three. Well, whatever is they're going to put on, I don't care. Uh, version, give me version three. Yeah. Looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah, we saw it at the store in Torrance. Actually, they've got yeah. it in the stores now. Yeah, looks really good. Well, the the the, the, the it's in, actually designed such that you don't notice it. <clears throat> so. He's like this. Look at this old house. This is like a, it's an old house. I don't know, probably fifty years old, something like that. And, and it's quite quirky. So if you put something on that was like that didn't blend in, that it, it would it would not look right. It would be pretty strident. And um, this had a black comp shingle roof. So I was like, okay, let's see if we can actually have it weave in and still feel natural, look good, and yeah. Um, and I think it's it's sort of achieved that goal. Um, yeah, this is a lovely, quirky little house. I'll show you around afterwards. It's got all sorts of weird things. Is it's exactly it what. Sorry. Is it Frank Lloyd? Right. No, I I don't think so. <laughs> I think it was just built in increments over time by probably several people. Um, but they, they they would have just knocked it down and built a giant house here. So it's like so glad they didn't. Yeah, it's super cool. It's really yeah, amazing. So. Gene Wilder is one of my favorite mm-hmm. uh, actors, actually. So. It's great, awesome movies. So, 
So when, when you come up with a product like the, the solar glass roof, I think a lot of people misunderstand that like your goal is to bring these crazy technologies to market and really create a change in the world. Yeah. And so I think it's fascinating that you do it through companies and it seems like the fastest way to create that feedback loop and to really like get go from inventing something to millions of people using it right away. Yes. So like, like I, it seems like buying a Tesla is almost like the best thing you could do to help the climate crisis because you're like turbocharging R&D and products and innovation. I, I feel like not enough people really understand that. Um, yeah, that, <clears throat> that, that is, I think there's lots of good things people can do for the climate, but just generally anything that is um, moving towards sustainable energy, um, whether it's sustainable energy, create. Um, um, generation through solar <clears throat> or with an electric vehicle. Um, actually, just th just things like better insulation in a house just is is really um, effective for energy consumption. Um, but but fun. Oh, geez, Morphin. It's ingratiating. That's Marvin the Motion. Oh. I actually got him a little. Um, for Halloween, a little knitted Marvin the Martian cap. Oh. <laughs> yeah, the little, you know, the helmet with yeah. the... It looked super cute. You got enough, buddy? <laughs> so did you always know, like, you know, business was the way you wanted to kind of attract, attack these problems versus, say, you know, maybe a non-profit or, you know, working as a college professor or something? I don't know. Uh, well, when I was in, in high school, I thought I would most likely be doing physics at a particle accelerator. So that's what I was, um, if physics and computers, I mean, I got distinctions in two areas in physics and computer science, and those were, yeah, so my two best subjects. And uh, and then I thought, okay, well, that I want, I want to figure out what's the nature of the universe. And um, so, I, you know, go try to working with people banging particles together to see what happens um, and um, and then it, it sort of things went along and the, the superconducting collider got cancelled in the US and that actually was like whoa you know what if I am working at a collider it's been all these years and then the government just cancels it wow and then that would was like I'm not going to do that so um, so it's like so my, my well, we roll, roll back a little. Um, like I was, I was trying to figure out what, what, when I was a kid, I had like this existential crisis, and I was about twelve years old or something, and and I was like, well, what does the world mean? What's it all about? Are we living some meaningless existence? Mm -hmm. And and then um, I made I made the mistake of reading Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, and <laughs> and, and I'm like, whoa. Well, <laughs> don't do that. Not it. Not it. Too. Not uh, it a bit older. I think. No, no. And actually, lately these days, I sort of rear it. It's sort of like, you know, it's actually he's not that bad. Uh, wait, I mean, he's, yeah. he's got issues. He's got issues. No question about it. But, but you know, it's anyway. Um, so, uh, but then I read uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams, uh, which was which is like quite a, really quite a good book on philosophy, I think. And uh, I was like, okay. We don't really know what the answer is, obviously. Uh, so, but the universe—the universe is the answer. And that really, what are the questions we should be asking to better understand the nature of the universe? And so, then, to the degree that we expand the scope and scale of consciousness, um, then we'll better be able to answer the ask the questions um, and understand the why we're here or what what it's all about. Mm. And so, we sort of take the set of actions that 
are most likely to result in us understanding what questions to ask about the nature of the universe. Um, so, the, so therefore, we, we, we must propagate uh, human civilization on Earth as far into the future as possible um, and become a multi-planet species to, again, extend the scope and scale of consciousness and incre increase the probable lifespan of, of um, consciousness, which is going to be, I think, probably a lot of machine consciousness as well in the future. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that's the best we can do, basically, you know, and yeah, that's the best we can do. So, um, you know, in thinking about the, the various problems that we're facing or, or what would most likely change the future, um, the when they were in college, there were sort of five things that I thought would be, um, I mean, I thought these were actually, these, 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 I would not regard this as a profound insight, but rather an obvious one. Uh, the, the internet would fundamentally change humanity because it's, it's like uh, humanity would become more of a super organism because the internet is like, the nervous, like a nervous system. Mm. Um, now suddenly any part of the human, human organisms Anywhere we have access to all the information, Amazing. instantly. Neuralink. Hey, well, I can imagine if you, if you didn't have a nervous system, you wouldn't know what's going on. Your fingers wouldn't know what's going on. Your toes wouldn't know what's going on. It, it'd have to do it by diffusion. Oh uh, gosh. And uh, yeah, and the way information used to work was really by diffusion. One human mm -hmm. would have to call another human, or or, or, or actually or go write there. them. <laughs> yeah. Yes, like if it was a, a letter, uh -huh. <laughs> you would have to write. A letter. You'd have to hand that letter to another human. That would. Be carried through a bunch of things. Find another person would give it to you. Inefficient. Extremely slow diffusion. Mm. Um, and if you wanted access to books, if you were not did not have a library, you're not, you don't have it. That's it. Right. So um, now you have access to all the books instantly. Um, and you, you, if you can be in a remote, like you know, mountaintop jungle location or something, and have access to all of humanity's information, if you've got a link to the internet. This is a fundamental, profound change. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I, I was on the internet early because of, of you know in the physics community that was pretty normal. Although it was, uh, interface was you know almost entirely text and hard to use. Um, but <clears throat> um, that, 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 then another one would be obviously making life multiplanetary, making consciousness multiplanetary. Um, the uh, um, changing uh, human genetics, um, which obviously I'm not doing, by the way. <laughs> uh, it, there's a thorny subject. Um, but it, it is being done with CRISPR and others. You know, it, 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 will, it will become normal, to, to, I think, to change the human genome. It will become normal. Like, what's the opportunity? Like, why is that something that's inevitable? Or Well, you know, I think for, for sure, as far as, say, um, getting rid of diseases or propensity mm -hmm. to various diseases, then you'd, that, that's going to be like the first thing that you'd want to edit out. You know, so it's like if you've got like your, you know, a situation where you're definitely going to die of some kind of cancer at age 55, you prefer to have that edited out. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think, you know, it's just edit that out. It, 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 you know, there's the, the, the Gattaca sort of extreme thing mm -hmm. where it's not really edited out, but it's like it's edited in for various enhancements and that kind of thing. Uh, I, which probably will come too, but I'm, I'm not saying, you know, arguing for or against it. I'm just saying this: the more likely to come than not uh, down the road. Yeah. So then, and then AI, um, really major one. 
so these are all big motivational factors you know, to you know yeah. keep our consciousness going oh and, and it's a sustain, sustainable yes yeah, so, yeah, so sustainable energy so sustainable energy actually was something that I thought it was important before the environmental implications became um, as obvious as they they are. So because if if, if you mine and burn hydrocarbons, then you're going to run out of them because mm -hmm. um, it, it's it's not like it's not like mining sort of say metals for example. If you if you you know the, we, we recycle steel um, and aluminum and uh, because that's just it's. It's, it's not a change of energy state. Whereas if you if you take fossil fuels, you're taking some some from a high energy state, converting it to a lower energy state like CO two, uh, which is extremely stable. You know. So whereas we will never run out of metals, not a problem. Um, we will run out of of mined hydrocarbons, um, and then necessarily, if if we have got billions, ultimately trillions of tons of hydrocarbons that were buried deep underground in solid liquid gas form whatever but they're deep underground you say you should move them from deep underground to the oceans and atmosphere you will have a change in the chemistry of the of the surface obviously um, and the, then there's just a certain probability associated with well how bad will that be um, and the range of possibilities goes from mildly bad to extremely bad uh, but then why would you run that experiment that seems yeah. like the craziest experiment ever Especially since we have to go to sustainable energy anyway, <laughs> why, why would you yeah. run that experiment? This is yeah. just the, the maddest thing I've ever heard. I'm not saying there shouldn't be some use of hydrocarbons on Earth, but there just should be have the, have a, the correct price placed on CO2 production. Mm -hmm. And and the obvious thing to do is have a, CO, a carbon tax. It's a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. Every if, I don't know the. 90 plus percent of economists would say this, and I think of physicists, and it's just the you know the market system works well if you've got a, the right price on things. It's very very simple. Mm -hmm. um, and if you, if you've got a price of zero, effectively or very low, then it's um, well people behave accordingly. So so it's just that's that's the thing that needs to get done. I think it will get done. Um, and and then the, the if, if over time as you raise the the price on on carbon, you can actually I think in, encourage a sequestration technologies over time, mm -hmm. um, and, and and there'll be a lot of innovation in that regard, and and that, that's the right way to do it. So you had these <clears throat> realizations about you know areas of big value, and you went and started Zip2. You sold it, got you know twenty million cash. You were the largest shareholder at pay of PayPal at the time. eBay acquired it. I think you know you got one hundred sixty million or something like that. Uh, you know, you have enough money basically for an entire lifetime. Why go and put your money into SpaceX, which is a huge, you know, risky operation, or Tesla? Why not just kind of you know relax? <laughs> Sure. What? So yeah, basically, um, you know, I I graduated from 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 Penn with, with basically physics and, and economics, um, and uh, then we <clears throat> did a road trip to uh, to Stanford uh, with with Robin Wren, who is in my physics class, um, and now works at Tesla actually. <laughs> um, That's cool. Yeah, he grew up in Shanghai. Yeah. So. Yeah, he's a very smart guy. He ended up continuing at Stanford, and I ended up 
going on deferment a couple days into the semester, but I, I was going to be studying um, material science and the, the physics of high energy density capacitors for use in electric vehicles. So, so the intent was, I was going to go, okay, I'm going to work on energy storage solutions for um, electric vehicles. And I'd worked at a company at called Pinnacle Research for a couple summers that did high, um, high energy density capacitors. I was going to try to do effectively like a solid state version of, of what they were doing with um, uh, it's going to get very complicated from a technical standpoint, but they were using a ruthenium, ruthenium tantalum oxide. Ruthenium is extremely rare and expensive. You cannot scale that. So it's like, can, can you find a substitute for ruthenium? But they were able to get to uh, energy density is comparable to a at battery, but with incredibly high power density. So, well, what do you want? Just I can I go down a deep rabbit hole there. But what's the purpose of a supercapacitor <laughs> in an EV? Ultra-capacitor. No, I think with the advent of uh, high-energy lithium-ion batteries, a capacitor is not not the right path. What was your thinking back then, though, that made you think it could be useful for EVs? I wanted to use um, advanced chip-making equipment uh, to make capacitors that were precise at a molecular level. Um, so at the, you know, just a level of precision that, that was sort of unheard of in, in capacitors. Like, capacitors' energy is a function of its area. And, and a separation distance. So if you have, if you can have very tiny separation distance, um, and you can, and you can inhibit quantum tunneling, like I so said, how do you, things get pretty esoteric? <laughs> so you're going to inhibit quantum t- tunneling, get a very short gap, um, um, and and then you could, in theory, get to very high energy densities you, um, by making capacitors in the way that you would make a. a uh, an, an x86 processor um, and since there's there were, there were tens of millions of dollars going into chip making R&D that I thought there might be a way to make an advanced capacitor using chip making equipment in, instead of the conventional means so is it off the table ultra capacitor it's unnecessary okay <laughs> <laughs> interesting it's unnecessary it, it, it's it, it's it, I think I think it's I think it's probably is physically possible but it's it's unnecessary at this point. I mean, I know a lot of people were talking about Maxwell, and they had been working on some stuff oh. with capacitors. Yeah. The, the funny thing is that when I was doing the um, my internships at uh, this uh, advanced capacitor company called Pinkle Research, which was in Las Gatas, we, we talked a lot about Maxwell, mm-hmm. and, and Maxwell was also trying to make high density capacitors. Now Tesla acquired Maxwell. Mm-hmm. That's, That's amazing. Circle. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. We're looking forward to that investor day. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of a big deal. That's great. Um, great to know. Maxwell has a bunch of technologies that are that that where if they're applied in the right way, I think can be have a, a very big impact. Like the dry electrode stuff. That would be one of them. Yeah. <laughs> oh. That's a big deal. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Much much bigger deal than it may seem. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, it, and there's like, a few other things with with the uh, the space that it takes up for the ovens that you know for the current technology you can save all that that real estate space now that's one aspect and the cost reduction the weight savings I mean there's so many pluses right yes I mean there's many things there but uh, I'll have to wait until you know whatever battery day sure uh, yeah. should, you know hopefully in a few months but I, I think we've got some pretty exciting things to share um, so. Galley's very excited. Yeah, it seems like the, the pace of the innovation of the, the battery thing has just taken off, like since you guys have more capital and being able to 
like have the Gigafactory be vertically integrated just seems like no other car company is making that many yeah. batteries. So they're not even thinking about what comes next. But that they're not trend, even, you know, I, man, not, it, close, no. <laughs> not even come close at all. I can 201 miles. <laughs> not, not even. That's a joke. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really, it's yeah. true. Uh, the other car companies just really want to outsource battery te- technology. Not, not even, not even making the like this battery module and cell, uh-huh. um, but they're they're obviously outsourcing the cells, but even yeah. outsourcing the modules and the packs. Yeah, you know, and and it's like they're really not thinking about fundamental chemistry improvements. And there's some pretty deep wizardry at Tesla on this front. I, I should say a bit about like like electric vehicles and 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 so, or sustainable energy in general. Uh, you know, I so said it, it was it was pretty. I think obvious to not not just me to me, but to a lot of people, maybe even go back 30 years or, or longer, that we must have uh, a sustainable energy solution. In fact, it's it's total logical. If it's un- if it's if it's a, if it's not sustainable, we must at some point find an alternative to it. Mm-hmm. And so, even if there were no environmental impact to uh, the sort of a fossil fuel economy, then we would run out of them, and then we'd have economic collapse and. Mm-hmm. Well, civilization would fall apart. Yeah. So, so that, that that was actually my initial motivation for electric vehicles. It's like, okay, we've got to have a solution that does not require um, mining hydrocarbons. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 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 is sustainable to, in the long term. It, 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 it was not actually initially from an environmental standpoint because I did not realize the gravity of the environmental situation at that time. Um, and I thought actually. For sure, by now we'd have electric cars. Like for sure, but are we back on the moon? Yeah, yeah, totally. Why are we not back on the moon? Exactly, it's insane. It is insane. <laughs> if you said told somebody in '69 that yeah, that we're not be back on the moon, and in like 2020, they'd be like, oh, you probably you might have gotten punched, honestly, because they'd be like, yeah. you're just it's it's like so insultingly rude to the future. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> they'd be like, "What is wrong with you?" Yeah, it's encouraging. SpaceX is encouraging, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like we should have a share of a base on the moon. We should have sent people to Mars. None of that's occurred. You know, it's got to. We've got to make that happen. Yeah. So, so, but on the sustainability front, it was really, like I said, it, not so much, initially not so much from an environmental standpoint, but from um, an, a necessity of, of replacing a finite resource um, mm-hmm. in order to ensure that civilization could continue to grow. And then the urgency of it became much more obvious, like, wow, we really better do something because uh, the environmental stuff is becoming quite serious. Um, and the, the, the inertia of large existing companies is just hard to appreciate. They just mm-hmm. want to keep doing the same thing and maybe 5% different every year, maybe 5% different. Um, big companies hate change. So, um, so then the... You know, at the time that Tesla, you know, was created, we, you know, there was no, no one was doing electric cars. No, there weren't really startups. There weren't the big car companies weren't doing it. Uh, GM and Toyota canceled their EV programs. Now everybody's doing it right now, like. Everybody, and their mom. Everybody's talking mom. about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Everyone and their mom is doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and we would all like to congratulate about the Gigafactory 3. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it's Epic. amazing. Yeah. And I would like to know, like, why China is the best country to build the first foreign Gigafactory? China is the biggest um, consumer yeah. of cars in the world. So uh, it's... 
so that, that, that alone would be enough to do it. Um, I think also there was a lot of uncertainty about uh, tariffs and, and, you know, it's like we potentially would be unable to sell effectively in China if we did not have a factory locally. Yes. Uh, or at least unable to sell at prices that weren't extremely high. But those are really the two, two main Chinese. reasons. Um, I think that... Um, but I think there's also a third important reason that, that there's just so much uh, talent um, and drive in China that I think it's a good place to do a lot of things. Um, and... Uh, the evidence is, is there in the incredible progress in the factory, yeah. um, which was um, built with very very high quality in a very short period of time. Um, and um, the, the the cars coming out of the of Shanghai right. are, are already very high quality. Oh, I can tell, and yeah. the the run rate is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I love yeah. that they use the uh, Chinese badge as well. It's like a symbol of pride and, sure. you know, made, yeah. made in China. So. Yeah, it's cool. It's super cool. How did Tesla manage to get the first wholly owned foreign car company in China? Yeah. I mean, a factory. Uh, well, uh, I have went to China many times and they kept saying that we would have to do this, you know, majority local owned venture. And, and I said that, well, and we had to partner with someone. I said, well, oh, you know, we're a little late to the dance here, you know. So who would we partner with, you know? Um, <laughs> there's nobody, nobody left. And and, uh, and also, we're just a little company. So, you know, we're, you know, the, the, I guess we should get married. And we're like, we're a bit young. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good example. <laughs> we're young, you know. And, and then, so then... Um, you know, but and and then also as I was pointing out, like, you know, there's so many Chinese companies that are going to, you know, they're establishing factories in or in the U.S. I mean, there's like Faraday Future and that kind of thing, and and that's hundred percent owned by them. And so, if, I mean, to be fair, it should be allowed that an American car company should be able to own its factory in China as well. Um, and so we, you know, talked to them for over a number of years, and they eventually said, okay, well, we'll, we'll change the law. So they change the law. But no, no, other, other companies can do it as well. Um, so it's not just limited to Tesla. Hmm. And, and how much of that production hell, like learnings, have really enabled? Because one of the, I don't want like to bring up CapEx, but one of my favorite things is the stats in the shareholder letter. It's so much cheaper, not only faster, but it yeah. seems like yeah. the, you guys have learned so much from this the Fremont factory, and that really enabled like kind of a turbocharged uh, build for Shanghai. Yeah, the... <clears throat> I think the, the big difference is is like we are way less dumb than we were. <laughs> um, so the the foolishness of capital expenditures was very high, um, and it's less high now. <laughs> um, and, and then with the the Shanghai factory, we designed out all of or, or as much of the the foolishness as we could think of um, that exists at Fremont. Um, and at in Nevada, um, so we just made, made a lot of decisions that weren't smart, and um, and we, we designed those out so that such the production line is much simpler. Um, so it's much simpler and and better implemented. Um, and then um, we also found like that those in most cases the suppliers were more efficient in China as well uh, than in the U.S. So. Um, 
we've also managed to get a lot more output from existing equipment in, in the US as well. So uh, the Model 3 body line in, in Fremont, for example, was only ever meant to do 5,000 cars, Model 3s a week, mm -hmm. and it's doing 7,000. Wow. Nice. Wow. So, nice. And, and it, with, with, with turning off a bunch of unnecessary things that were being done. So, um, it, it, I mean, there's just, a, there was a lot of foolish things that we were doing. So, um, and, and we changed some of the designs and, um, made it easier to, it would, it, it's, it, it's like a, hundreds of little things, um, to make it, to make it easier to build. And, and so being able to get 40% more output off the same line obviously makes a, makes a big difference. Um, and, and while, while reducing the cost, the, the marginal cost of production, and, and, I, and I think improving the quality of the car. Um, so it's, it's all good, good stuff. It was the result of a ton of hard work um, by a lot of people. So, yeah, and it, it was kind of necessary in that we, we, there was, we didn't really have a place to put a second Model 3 body line. So it's like either we either make this one go faster or we will not be able to um, achieve production. Mm. Um, but the Model 3 body line in Shanghai is um, much, much simpler than the one in, uh, and I say that in a good way, um, than the, because it has the same the same end result. So if, 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 you, if you know, um, and, and but, but it, it's a, a much easier to understand this, just getting rid of unnecessary movement. There's a lot of unnecessary movement in the Fremont body line, but not in Shanghai. Um, so you guys said in the production letter that you just started battery production in Shanghai too. And I heard that you guys were uh, getting cells from cattle and LG Chem. Are the cells basically kind of like a commodity part that you can uh, assemble into your battery packs there? Or, you know, does it make a difference? How do you see that long term? I, th I believe these cells are not yet from LG. We, we, we do expect to uh, use locally locally produced cells, but I'm um, like I don't. To be clear, I don't always know exactly what's going on in, everywhere <laughs> in the fifty thousand person company. So, so some of the things, like most 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 of the things I say, will be correct, but maybe occasionally something that's not. Um, as to this, my knowledge, we're not yet using. Um, uh, LG Chem cells. We're using Panasonic cells made in Nevada. But LG Chem can make pretty much the same cells as Panasonic. Yes, but pretty much is not the same as <laughs> same. So there, there's still a few uh, bugs to work out with the LG Chem cells um, before we can use them in our module and battery pack uh, production system. Um, the CATL cells, or the CATL situation, will be more of an integrated module, then it will be a cell, um, um, and that's so. So that it's it's not just it's not super easy to replace these things, mm. um, but yeah, we're, we'll be we do expect to use CATL. We do expect to use LG. Currently, we're use, using Panasonic. When I say expect to use, I mean like literally a matter of months. So by the middle of this year, we probably be using both LG and CTL um, in, in volume. Wow. So we were talking about 
a lot of Tesla stuff, but we kind of wanted to ask you about your personal history because we were saying you were saying how there's some misconceptions you would like to make straight. And you know, Ashley Vance wrote a book about you. I just read oh, May's lovely sure. book, and it was really wonderful. I loved it and learned a little bit more history about your family and you. But um, what are some of the misconceptions that you would like to correct? You know, most of this is just it ended up being kind of water under the bridge that people didn't notice that much. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a sort of so, some stories in there where it, it sounds like I like fired people all of a sudden and arbitrarily, uh, which was not the case. Uh, there, um, you know, the, the, it just actually asked somebody who, uh, who who didn't know what was going on, and then that person was suddenly not there, and they didn't know why. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 I definitely do not fire talented people, and you know, unless there's no option. So yeah, um, and absolutely not 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 without warning. Or like, keep hearing you say we. Like, it sounds like you're always thinking of everybody. You're, I, I see you as a very selfless person in your uh, endeavors. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, yeah. It's like from the age of twelve. It sounds like you've been thinking about how to help humanity. Um, yeah. I mean. I'm not trying to be sort of like some, you know, the sort of savior or something like that, you know. But it's it's really just that uh, if if it just seems like the it just I don't know seems like the obvious thing to do. I, I can't like I'm not sure why you do anything else. Um, you you know, we want to maximize happiness of the population and propagate into the future as far as possible and understand the nature of reality. Um, and from that, I think everything else follows. Um, I saw you on Twitter um, like talking about how like people are having this rumor that you've been wealthy your whole life and that would be like the only reason you became successful and you've debunked that. And can you like share more about your upbringing and what led you to going to North America? <laughs> Uh, when you sure. Uh, I was in, in South Africa and uh, it seemed like w w wherever there was, like a lot of the advanced technology in the world was being produced in America mm -hmm. um, and Silicon Valley especially. So I wanted to be where where I could sort of be have an impact on technology so that's, or, or be involved in the creation of, of new technology. So that's what prompted me to go to um, at first Canada because I could get citizenship in Canada through my mom and then ultimately to the US um, but yeah I just uh, left South Africa um, um, when I was 17 and landed in Montreal and I had like I don't know about $2,000 Canadian <laughs> uh, yeah, and I started staying in a youth hostel for a few days and then th there was a you could buy a ticket to go across the country for a hundred bucks uh, and stop along the way. And so um, I did put that and uh, just took a greyhound across Canada and saw all these like little towns. Well, we were getting, <laughs> I didn't have much. I had like a backpack and a suitcase books, but the, 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 that the bus company, greyhound, they unloaded it, uh, it in one of the cities, and then the bus left without my my stuff. Oh, that's nice. So I literally had nothing. All your books. But your clothes too. 
Um, actually, weirdly, I think I might have had the books thing, but no, my, <laughs> my clothes. That was priorities. All you needed. Yeah, because I needed. I was just sitting in the bus station reading, waiting for the bus to get ready. Yeah. Um, and I think I had the books, but not not no, but no clothing. <laughs> oh no. Oh. <laughs> so, anyway, um, but I managed to get to Swift Current, Saskatchewan, um, and then my my it's it's your cousin. My cousin's son. Cousin's son, yeah has a wheat farm there and I worked on the wheat farm for about six weeks. Wow. Um, wow. And so I turned 18 in Saskatchewan. Um, it, and it's a town called Swift Current. So that was summertime, right? It was June. Yeah. Yeah. June 28th. So, cause I've been there in the winter and it's like minus 40. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to be traveling. There. Yeah. Did you ice skate? Did you try ice skating? No, there was, it was quite warm. Okay. Oh, well, time. I mean in the winter. Did you stay for the winter? Were you there in the winter? No, I was just there, I was there for about six weeks. Oh, you're lucky you survived. That's good. Yeah, so <laughs> it's I was cold w- there. Literally work, working on the wheat farm. Um, we did a barn raising and I cleared out the wheat bins, you know, the grain grain silos and that kind of thing. And um, I just worked the vegetable patch, basically just doing various things. Was your mind just thinking of what you're, what you're going to do after that? Yeah, I was trying to figure out what, what, what I do next. Uh, don't know what to do. Um, so then, then I ended up getting back on the bus and went to Vancouver mm. and I had a, a half uncle there, um, who was kind of in the lumber industry. Um, he like made lumber, like lumber equipment. Sounds like the Northwest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Basically. So I ended up chainsawing logs and working on uh, the slumber mill, um, and, uh, cleaning out the, 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 where they where they boil the pulp and yeah. it's like mm. cra- crazy sort of boiler rooms yeah. um, wow. and that that might be the hardest job I've had actually because you have to like crawl through this little tunnel um, in a hazmat suit and then uh, with with a uh, uh, shovel with, with and, and then shovel this sort of steaming sand and and, and mulch out of the <laughs> the boilers to clean them out. Um, wow, and and you have to like, there was only one entrance or exit, which was like a little little tunnel. If you're claustrophobic, you could be real real bad, and and then you could you shovel the 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 sand and the mulch through the tunnel, uh, and it would actually block the tunnel, and then somebody else would reach in and shovel it out from the other side. So just big enough, long enough that if you have a shovel with a long handle. The, so, so one person on the inside can shovel it far enough that the, someone on the outside can shovel it out. Wow. And then you have to, to rotate every 15 minutes to avoid getting hyperthermia. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and there's intense. no safeties to just a man looking out for you. <laughs> there's just two people kind of paired up. So if like one person collapses and you go to call somebody. <sighs> but it'd be really hard to drag somebody out. I have to say it does not seem safe. Because if the tunnel gets blocked, trying to get the trying to unblock that tunnel would be very difficult in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it was the highest paying job at the, the, at the employment office. So, <laughs> so, that's why I was like, okay, the other jobs were like, I don't know, eight dollars an hour, and this one was eighteen dollars an hour. You had to buy your clothes, and they're all gone. <laughs> well, they gave they did give you a hazmat suit. So, oh, there you go. Yeah. How long did you have? To, did you do that job for? Uh, like four days. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was, then it was done. Yeah, it was awesome. You said it was like a short-term thing, cleaning grain bins, uh, cleaning the the, yeah, the, boilers. Say, the boiler rooms. Mm-hmm. So what was next? We yeah. were in boiler rooms, and then yeah. So it was basically, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, literally, it was like a lumberjack who's chainsawing uh, logs, 
um, and uh, just doing lumber lumber stuff basically um, for a few months there, and then applied for college and went to uh, Queen's University in um, Kingston, um, and uh, was there for a couple of years, and then uh, somebody that suggested I should apply to UPenn, and uh, I I didn't think I'd be able to go because I. I'd, I was paying for my own way through university, just which is actually not that hard in Canada because the the tuition system, yeah, the tuition is highly subsidized in Canada. So, um, so with you know with basically some if you if you just sort of work during the the summer and semester and take out some loans and some get some scholarships, you can pretty much go to any college in Canada, I think. But I met someone who was at UPenn and and they said you should at least apply and I applied and they they actually gave me like quite a big scholarship so uh, that that allowed me to go there and so then I did the physics and economics um, there and uh, and and then that that's what led to the road trip to Stanford with uh, Robin Wren um, and, uh, and and then I, that was during that that summer that I was, was like, okay, if I can either spend several years kind of doing a PhD and not that I care about the PhD actually, but I just needed a lab. Um, but I, I could either spend a bunch of years working in a lab um, and maybe it would, maybe the technology would pan out or maybe it wouldn't. Um, but the internet would, would, was definitely about to go supernova in 95. So, I was like, okay, look, I, I can always come back to working on electric cars, basically, um, and which I said I did. <laughs> um, but the internet is not going to wait. So, was, uh, so then I put um, Sanford on deferment and um, started Zip2, which was really just, uh, you know, we started off with maps and directions, yellow pages, white pages, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, it was, you know, for, for best of my knowledge, the first maps and directions on the internet. So, uh, and there's still some like patents I have. Uh, well, I don't know how many more, but I think they've obviously lapsed at this point. But um, for maps and directions and Yelp pages and advertising and stuff. And I, I wrote the whole, the whole initial code base. I wrote personally because there wasn't any rails. It was just me. So, um, and. I only had a few thousand dollars, and my brother joined, and he brought like five thousand dollars, which was a lot. Yeah, at least for the first few months, there was literally only one computer. So, the website when the website wasn't working, it was because I was compiling code, yeah. <laughs> and and, um, and even to get an internet connection was pretty hard. But there was a internet service provider on the floor below us. We're more or less squatted in this office. The landlord was was like out of the country or something, and nobody was using it. So, so you lived in there? Yeah. I think I read that in May's book. You showered at the YMCA then, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's smart, though. I mean, you you were thrifty. You did what you had to do. We just like had no no money, so <laughs> we're gonna do. Yeah. What did people think about Zip Two generally? Was it like? seen as a crazy idea or like did people even understand the internet back then most people did not understand the internet most people didn't know even on sand hill road like we tried pitching people to invest in 
an internet company, most of the VCs we pitched to had never used the internet. Do you remember some of the VC firms you went to on Sandhill? Um, I remember most of the time we wouldn't take a meeting, and if they did take a meeting, they were pretty bored and not uh, <laughs> said like, who's, who's made money in the internet? No, we're like, no one, okay. Um, but but the, the sea change occurred when um, Netscape went public. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, but the first thing I, I tried to do was not start a company. I tried to get a job at Netscape, but they didn't reply to me. Oh no! Oh, oh man! So I just and I tried and then I tried hanging out in the lobby at Netscape. <laughs> I don't know who to talk to. I was, I was really too shy to talk to anyone. I don't know. So it's like okay, I can't get a job at the only internet company that you know that that, that does internet software. So then I try writing software. Um, so that's. Um, kind of what, what happened there. Yeah, and then, my, like I said, my brother came down and joined. This is like, well, like late 95. Um, and then in January 95, I think it was, the um, uh, there was there was a lot more interest in the internet stuff following Nets, the Netscape IPO. Um, and that's, the software, software was more impressive, I guess. So then we, then more, more David Allen invested. Um, so their VC firm on Sand Hill Road. Um, and they, they invested, I think it was like $3 million for effectively 60% of the company. Wow. Um, which we thought was crazy. Uh, they're like, well, these give, they're going to give us the money for nothing. <laughs> 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 they must be mad. <laughs> yeah, so they, they, that, this, this seems like, like crazy that they would give so much money for a company that consists of the time of about five people. Um, like literally, I think five people at the time. So... Uh, but anyway, it, it worked out well for them in the end. So we we, we hired a lot more people. Um, we built out the service, and uh, and they also ended up writing a bunch of software to bring the newspapers online. So Knight Ritter, New York Times Company, Hearst, uh, were all became investors and, and customers. Um, and at, at one point, Zip2 um, was responsible for a significant section of the New York Times Company website. Yeah, so I got to know the media industry pretty well, and uh, but but uh, over over what I worked really happened with with Zip2 is it effectively got too too much there was, there was too much control um, by the existing media companies, um, so they had too many board seats and too too much voting control, yeah. and that they kept uh, trying to push the company down directions that made no sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, like Zip2 actually had. Uh, really good software. I'd say software that's comparable in some ways more advanced than say a Yahoo or Excite at the time, but it was just not being used properly, um, and it was all being forced through uh, through media companies um, who would they not not use it. You know, so it's like yeah. it's like okay, we've got the best technology, but it's it's not being deployed properly. So, but fortunately, uh, Compaq came along, and they. Um, Compaq had acquired digital equipment, and digital equipment had um, owned AltaVista, which at the time was probably the best search, best search engine. Mm-hmm. So they thought they, their idea was 
they will combine AltaVista with a bunch of other internet companies and try to compete, create a competitor to Yahoo um, or Excite. That, that was the Excite used to be a big thing, amazingly, um, and Yahoo used to be a big thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah a long time ago. Yeah, now it's like owned by Verizon or something. Yeah. And there was AOL. AOL, AOL. AOL. back then. Mm-hmm. Yahoo's a crazy story. They, you know, yes. they failed to acquire Google twice. You know, Microsoft offered them like $40 billion or something, and they turned it down. And then Alibaba saved them out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. The Alibaba stake was worth more than the whole, whole company at one point. By like, a, yeah, a huge amount. Right. It was basically a proxy for Alibaba shares training. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. But at, at one point, at, I mean, at that time, like if you go back to say 98 99 yahoo seemed like an unstoppable juggernaut yeah like literally like yeah this company will you know (laughs) is a behemoth (laughs) nobody could possibly defeat them um but anyway um and and where's calm back today yeah so uh but but that that was their idea which is you know at least if executed well could have made sense um Kimbo! Wow. <laughs> yeah, what are, you, what are you guys doing? We're recording a podcast. Uh, yeah, how do you want me to join? Um, yeah, pull up a chair. So what do you remember about Zip2? Um, yeah, we remember. Yeah, so but uh, then the internet came along, became this huge thing. I mean, it was, always, it was always there, but it became a big deal. And then Elon was working on, uh, working in Silicon Valley and as I remember it, you know, I overheard uh, a meeting where uh, some of the Yellow Pages companies were thinking of doing sort of online Yellow Pages. And no, where would I, why would I have been in a meeting? I don't know. Like I, this, this, is, <laughs> this is a long time ago. But anyway, you, you called me up and you said, we should do, you think you can do, uh, do a better job? So we think we can do a better Maybe job. Maybe you made so. that up to try and get Kimball interested. How would I be in a meeting with Yellow Pages companies? I have no idea. That's what I remember. <laughs> No. But what's your version of it? Sleepless nights. Where we? I don't even know any yellow pages. Uh, I, I agree with you. I okay, agree with okay. you now. But but um, so it was like uh, I think uh, April of 1995. We started working on it, and the um, uh, uh, I guess the idea was fairly simple to take mapping and apply it to the internet. And there were there were a few other companies trying to do it, but no one with uh, uh, ver- the very cool technology of of uh, sort of what was called vector-based mapping, which is which is what what we all use today, where the map is actually alive, you know, not not just a picture. That was very ahead of its time. You know. uh, I think we were the first. I, I I know there were other people putting maps on the internet, but I think we were the first to put vector-based mapping, which is what the kind of technology you use today on on the internet. And door-to-door directions, so it was cool. I, I remember my brother and I pressing go on on his server at our office, and it took about sixty seconds for the first door-to-door door-to-door directions to come up on the wow. screen. <laughs> and even oh sixty God. seconds was amazing. Yeah, you were like, sure. "This is incredible!" <laughs> door-to-door directions to anywhere. This is just amazing. And um, definitely seemed amazing at the time. Definitely seemed amazing at the time. Yeah, yeah. it's like now it's like, it's like so now it's like wherever. Normal, but um, this was like an impossible thing. <laughs> so cool. It was so cool. And uh, using Java, Elon had coded a, a, a interactive map, which again, all super normal stuff today. But the ability to just draw a square and zoom in or zoom out—that was just unheard of uh, technology. 
Draw a square. <laughs> yeah, you remember that? It was like a little, little, little red square on the Java map. On a browser, it was that was unusual. Yes, yeah. you just like yeah. Well, you cheated if you're using Java applets. Yeah, but this was when Java sucked and it was barely. Yeah, this was like the, probably the most. It was I think, we even got, I think we even got some sort of recognition because it was the most advanced Java application on on Java at the time because hmm. it was so ridiculously hard. hard it was, it was a really crappy technology at the time, well, but this, this was done on it. Oh, wow. The thing is, if, if, you, if you downloaded the, the Java app, we could, we could uh, transmit the vector data, not just a bitmap. Mm -hmm. And this is what, when everyone was on a modem. Right. So if somebody's on like, you know, 28 kilobits modem or, for, you know, trying to download an, a map image mm -hmm. would take forever. Whereas if you had, but downloading the vector data so that locally rendered using the, the, the Java applet was super, was relatively speaking, super fast. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's what made it cool. Smart. Yeah. I mean, yeah, even like vector maps or even Google maps using like raster maps a few years ago, like <laughs> it seems like very ahead of its time. <laughs> well, we, we were the but first, I, guess, I, I believe, I believe we, the two of us were the first humans to see Maps in all directions on the internet, which, which I think is pretty cool. Very it's cool. Very cool. Yeah. How, Garmin <laughs> came out. How, when did Garmin first launch? Um, well, they weren't internet-based, right? So you could, you could. Actually, I don't think Garmin was even a player at this point. It was uh, Navtech was the only place that we were. That's where we got the data from. Yeah. And they were building it for for Hertz Neverlust, which came out a few years later. You know those yeah, yeah. things that no one uses in the the GPS <laughs> systems. Um, really, really bad technology, but the actual mapping data was amazing. And so we took that and uh, applied it to the internet. We were 22 and 23 at the time. It had cost them $300 million to build this data, and they gave it to us for free with a simple contract saying, if you ever make any money on this, you've got to, you've got to come Share it us. with them. Yeah. And wow. that's, that's how we got it. Wow. That's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, you can, so it's amazing what, you, what happens if you ask. Ask nicely. <laughs> and there's also part of it was these guys had been working so hard on the tech and no one had ever seen what they were doing. Yeah. Because it was not on the internet and it was not being used for, for Hertz. And so it was just, they were excited that someone would use the data and it would take, people could see what they'd been working on. So how did you get guys get the engineering chops to pull this off? Because it sounds like you were so young, you didn't really have any help, and then you built this like cutting edge piece of technology. Did I you, mean, you teach yourselves or from I don't know what time, what age, but you publish your first the, the like Blast Star game, right? Yeah, when I think it was twelve. Did you write any other cool stuff back then? Yeah, I wrote a bunch of games. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and then like occasionally like software for people that ask for software. You know, you also work for a video game company. Yeah, or, 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 or funny, it was called um, Rocket Science. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, by the way, we took a SpaceX tour yesterday. It was insane. That was, Thank you for that. That was amazing. Oh yeah, it was so good. It's like Batman's lair in there. That's <laughs> right. It's really cool. It really is amazing. But it gives you perspective on what Tesla's doing because the technology is so advanced, and there, there's you know interchange of information there, like the. I know they used the Inconel fuse, right? It was from SpaceX when they couldn't get the the power output, right? It kept burning up the fuse in the in the, the performance models. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool to see the SpaceX tech being applied to Tesla. I think I think there's yeah. a joint there's one joint employee between SpaceX and Tesla, and it's, really? it's the materials. Is it the materials engineer? What about Elon? Uh, yeah. <laughs> in addition to Elon. 
Because it, there's just not that many humans on the planet that know how to do this stuff. No. Well, it sounded like back in the old days, it was, was it just Elon doing the coding? Or I mean, I did a little for like HTML front you end, still doing but any it wasn't Elon? mine. Yeah. Uh, not recently. Uh, but no, there was, there was, we had no money, so you can employ him. Yeah. 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 So I just wrote, I just the software. And you worked through the night, right? You just never, yeah, according to May's book, you worked. just never slept. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we, we lived in a little office. I think this address was 470 Sherman Way in, uh, yeah. in Palo Alto. It was probably... It was about the size of this room here. Yeah, it was probably like 15 feet wide by 30 feet long with a little, little closet in the back. And we would... Um, we, we couldn't afford a place to sleep or like a, place, like a house, a home or apartment. So we would sleep in it and it had a couch that was a futon and we would pull out the futon, take turns sleeping on the futon or the floor. Although he coded a lot at night, so I usually got the futon at night. <laughs> um, uh, and we had to code it at night because the server, when the internet was live, needed to be functional. And we just had data for the Bay Area at the time. So we were just kind of making sure that the people in the Bay Area could use it. And then... Um, uh, and then we had a little, little mini fridge with a cooking stove on it, and we'd cook uh, simple things, you know, like pasta sauce and pasta and things like that. That would be as cheap as dirt. People think you, it's expensive to eat real food. It's actually really cheap. Yeah. You know, you cook, cook vegetables, pasta, and beans and stuff. Beans, super cheap. So we had that Jack <laughs> in the Box absolutely the cheapest. And then, and then we would go eat at Jack in the Box, which I can still, I still kind of shiver a little. <laughs> I, still, I haven't eaten there for, for probably... 20 years uh, or longer maybe 22 years and I can still probably recite the entire menu yeah recycle through the menu at Jack in the Box because it's walking it was like a few blocks away from and it was open 24 hours open 24 hours yeah. trying to get you know dinner in Palo Alto after 10 is a very different zero yeah. yeah so did they know you very well at, at Jack in the Box well they didn't really no. they did no and I remember one time I got a milkshake and, and I, I was so tired it was like 4, four in the morning and just needed to get some sugar for the, for the rest of the night and, and there was something in it Oh, no. And I remember just flicking it out and just pretending it didn't exist and just kept drinking my milkshake. Oh, <laughs> oh that's horrible. It was, it was like that, or that kind of like not in the zone to go back into Jack in the Box and argue about a milkshake, but I don't want to not drink the milkshake. And part of the reason their food was like so cheap is that they had uh, some people, I think, died of food poisoning. Yes, of course. Uh, yes. and, uh, like, it was it, right around that time when they got into a food poisoning scare. Oh, and, uh, Yeah, so they're... they're it was just very cheap to eat there. <laughs> and I figured, like, you know, they probably have, you know, have taken some action because after the food poisoning. Yeah, so hopefully. Yeah, that's all. It's just like eat a little bit of it. Does it taste funny? Stop eating if it tastes funny. You run out of things to eat because it, after, like, the 17th chicken fajita pita, you're like, chicken fajita pita. Can't do it. The teriyaki bowl. Yeah, remember that teriyaki bowl? Was that one good? It's, it's actually it varied, but it was it was edible. It was so bad. Which one was? The teriyaki bowl. Teriyaki bowl wasn't bad. There was the sort of uh, sourdough uh, grilled grilled cheese thing that was wasn't bad. Yeah, I honestly didn't mind it. Those yeah. were the good old days, right? I mean, it was honestly it was good days. I mean, we just we were just hoping that people would let us stay in the country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't really that worried about what we were eating. We, we, were, we were just doing everything we could to, uh, to, get, to, to get someone to support the company. We didn't really understand, I didn't understand the venture capital world that much. So we were doing a seed round, an angel round, and doing our best to talk to everyone and anyone we could find. Uh, we had a very good friend with us, Greg Curry, who's now passed away, who 
was older than us by about 10 years, I think. And yeah. uh, was a wonderful mentor, helped us out and uh, put a little money in as well. And and then uh, I did a lot of the work to just find, just network with people. I think our, uh, with our first salesman who was selling Yellow Pages ads for us uh, was a real estate agent who knew another person who knew this other person who helped us who helped us in raise or put together we ended up not doing the round but put together a, a round of like two hundred thousand dollars or something yeah and then um we did like part of it or something I don't yeah know. but i think once we had the java java map which was really quite impressive i mean if you've never seen if you're if you've never seen google maps or yahoo maps before it really is a remarkable thing to see we we started to go to uh we got it we got some audiences with some venture capitalists and it just went from we were starving we had no car well the car we had had broken the wheel and, fell off huh the wheel oh, fell yeah. off the wheel fell off yeah what kind of car was it i remember that it's an old bmw 3 series was it the one you were we did a road nice. yeah. across oh, the country yeah the one that my mom has some pictures of i think there's i think there's still a, a there's a there's a carve in the t in the road at page mill and El Camino. It literally the wheel came off the wheel fell off and and the, and the guy literally in the intersection just drove it without the wheel to the to the side it's it pretty much time for the junkyard at that point because it, the whole car is just falling apart so uh yeah it's like the point at which the wheel falls off it's time to go to the junkyard. <laughs> Timbo, the night before the, you met the venture canvas, you and I were at Kinko's till two in the morning. No, that was no, that was way more stress. That was way later because we already had the deal, but we were I we were not. I don't know if you were, but I was not legally in America, so I was illegally there. Oh, I was legally there, but but I was meant to be doing student work. Oh yeah, oh. I, I just had a student work visa. Yeah, you, you, were, you were doing a P, you were supposed to be doing a PhD in Stanford and yeah. decided not to. So and I, so wow. it was like I was allowed to do work, sort of supporting yeah. whatever you know. Yeah. I don't know. Whereas yeah. I actually, I, I, I try to get a visa, but there's just there's just not no, no visa you can get to do a startup. Yeah, fortunately nobody was paying you anything either. <laughs> and so so we ended up getting. Yes. Uh, we got a deal from uh, from from Moore David out and uh, this uh, really high, well respected VC firm, and we had to break the news to them that 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 we take the bus we took the bus to get to to the offices. We don't have a car and we don't have an apartment, and we're illegal. No, 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 no you're illegal. Uh, <laughs> And, and so I, I was legal, but my visa was going to run out in two years. Okay. Yeah, but I was definitely student visa. I, we needed to get it sorted, and so uh, they were great. I mean, their the the lead investor, his wife was from Canada. They they knew the whole challenge of being an immigrant, and we had Canadian passports. And so uh, they they funded the company, and they gave us some money to each buy a car, and they gave us a salary so we could rent an apartment, and they. And we, I got a, a visa uh, through through the company, but but the, the day the morning we were supposed to present to the partners, I went to Toronto to, because my mother was freaking out because she needed her computer fixed, and what really seriously this is brutal. So I <laughs> I flew out there planning to fly back on Sunday, and the meeting was on Monday, and I get to the airport on Sunday, and um, the. The, the border control, are, they, they call me out. They're like, you're, you're, you're going down to work. You're not going down for, for, for travel. And I was like, no, 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 I'm going down to work. I explained 
Uh, actually, no, I didn't. I, I, I said, I, I'm not going to work because I think that's what I was supposed to say. But the lawyers told me not to say anything. And so they, they rejected me from the border. Oh. oh. And so I'm supposed to would do the presentation with Elon the next morning. And so a friend of mine came to pick me up at the airport and drove me across the border. And we went to the, the, the Buffalo border and just said, we're going to go see the David Letterman show. Nice. <laughs> that's hilarious. And the border control guy was like, yeah, go ahead. Oh. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing! I got, I got on, I got on the, the late night flight from Buffalo to San Francisco, and uh, we made the meeting in the morning. So wow. very good. Yeah, I mean, technically, you were not going out of work because that would have required meant you were being paid yeah, something. You know, were, yeah, I wasn't actually paid anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Technically, we weren't actually. No, you're right. You're not actually breaking the law. We're not breaking the law because we we were not being paid anything. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I should have told them that at the border control. <laughs> but anyway, it was very By frustrating. Work, do you mean getting paid for something? No, I'm not doing that. No, yeah, you're right. Exactly. We were not not being paid. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so then uh, they they approved the deal that Monday, and we started building Zip Two. You know, and um, it wasn't a business model for you know back in those days. Well, it was it was kind of like a pre like Yelp is like is but. The business model was similar to it, sort of Yelp, yeah. but it was at a time when most businesses didn't didn't know what the internet was, so mm-hmm. and most people didn't have an email address or yeah, they we went online. Yeah, we had to explain to them what a website was. The internet was the, kind of this cool thing. People were using Netscape browser, <laughs> and uh, I think by the end of it, we we got eighteen thousand businesses to be on on our service, pay paying to be like with websites and everything. Yeah, you know, a lot of the things that you can do today, like automatically build websites, we we. We built a lot of those sort of tools to make it easier to build websites, and we had to sell door to door because that was the only way. Did uh, you hire people, or is it just you guys going door to door? No, no, we had a team by that time because we could hire hire a team. But um, I remember talking to a Yellow Pages guy once, and it was amazing. It was the head of the oh, Toronto yeah. Star that they owned. All the yellow pages. In the yellow pages will never die. Famous last word. <laughs> Literally, because <laughs> we we went and talked to him to partner. We said we want to part with you and, and let's let's be one of your partners to do to put the yellow pages online. And he picked up the yellow pages. This book, this big thick book, that full of ads. This multi-billion dollar revenue stream. <laughs> I mean, these these guys were so arrogant and so, so arrogant. like oh, wow. we are kings of the world and Seriously. it will never end. He picked, he picked up this book and he like, threw listen, it at me. And he said, do you ever think you're going to replace this? <laughs> and I was just literally like, I, I, I'm in my head. And my head is like, dude, you're already dead. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. Reminds me of the anti-Tesla people, you know. Gas cars will never die. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. But I mean, like, we, we saw the growth of the internet, we saw the use of the yellow pages, we saw even all our competitors and stuff, and no one was using the paper yellow pages if you had the choice. Yeah. Yes, exactly. No one. Yes, that's very true. And so, so at that point, very few people were on the internet, so it was really a question of really, is the internet going to succeed, mm-hmm. which we were huge believers in, and these guys were not, you know, mm-hmm. they didn't even clue in. Yeah, but it was like one one phone country after after another. We say like, listen, we'll just put your L pages online. It's going to cost very little, you know. You'll still own all the content and everything. Um, and they're like, they'll just throw us throw us out of the office. Yeah. You know, like no. And how dare you even suggest this? It was, it was, it was extraordinary, and it's been. <laughs> we're like, okay, I guess we'll just build it. And, yeah. And then if, we're yeah. But it's been interesting to watch over the years where, like in PayPal, the competitors were were not. Uh, 
banks, you know, even though that should have been the competitor. No, there, there were there were banks that tried to compete. Um, but wasn't it eBay mostly that was sort of the, the ban- well, eBay, had, eBay had something called Bull, Bullpoint. Um, yeah. That which, but it wasn't exactly like PayPal. Yeah. Um, but it, generally, eBay had an issue with trying to uh, get payment for stuff. Like, yeah. more, like two people would have to mail checks to each other. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's gonna work. <laughs> if you mail a check and you receive the check, and you, how do you know the check's real? Then you've got to, you know, cash check and take, you know, two to five days for the for the money to transfer. So it could take two weeks before somebody had confirmed payment, and then I. And then they would ship you the item, and so the the transaction uh, velocity was very low as a result. Mm-hmm. If you had instant payment, you could imp- improve transaction velocity dramatically, like a factor of you know maybe three to five. Yeah, mm-hmm. but so, I've, I've just sort of seen that the, the when you when an in- industry is disrupted, that you worry about the major players. I mean, we remember when we started Tesla, we were aspiring to be the GM of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Four years later, GM went bankrupt. You're like, oh, okay, we don't want to be, we don't want to be GM. We're good. We're good. We're good. Um, and uh, and and it's you know whoever is going to be the main competitors, you know, we don't know yet, but um, uh, it may not be the the entrenched players. It may, it may be not, yeah. uh, sort of other companies. Um, and so so that happened at Zip Two, where where we. we we tried our best to partner with the industry because that seemed like the best way to make some money and actually have a revenue model. And we ended up finding the newspapers to be a, a better partner because they didn't have the Yellow Pages business. And um, they, I think they seemed, were smarter. Their, their classifieds business was, was getting eaten away by Craigslist. Um, you know, before Craigslist, classifieds was the bread and butter of, of the newspaper. And of course, anyone who used, used Craigslist would never use the newspaper. So it was... It was those folks seem to have a better, uh, uh, at least some of the players had a more more vision of the future, and so our business became putting you know, major newspapers, New York Times, to all of the you know Philadelphia Inquirer, Chicago Tribune, or whatever, all all the main players, all the the, the LA Times, everyone, and then we started going internationally, doing the same thing. So if you went on to the New York Times website and you wanted to search for a restaurant, of course, they have all these reviews. Or if you wanted to search for a home, you could, you could, we tied the MLS together with maps and door-to-door directions. So all of these services that we now use and take for granted that use maps and door-to-door directions, we, we did that all in the 90s to find a business model. Yeah. Well, why didn't you do PayPal um, after Zip2? Why didn't you go like straight into sustainable energy? Um, right, so um, gotta re- recall things that are not for quite a while. <laughs> so it would have been like '98 um, when Compaq offered to acquire Zip2, um, and uh, which I think it was a good thing for them to acquire it because, as I mentioned, the the newspapers actually, or the media companies, had too much control over Zip2. So they were not, we, we had great technology that was not being deployed effectively. Um, and they would just generally be averse to anything that could remotely be competitive with their newspapers. So so we're sort of trapped in this uh, situation. Um, and uh, I think Compaq came along and, and, and bought the company in late 98, and the deal closed early 99. So, so then, as a result of that, um, Kim and I had some capital, uh, twenty million dollars or something out of it, and um, the, the the I think the thing that was frustrating to me was that we built 
uh, incredible technology um, and it had not been used. It was just sort of like, it was very disappointing. You know, we put a lot of work into this technology and it just wasn't being used. So I was like, okay, I'm going to want to do one more thing on the internet just to show that we can make technology that is, uh, when it's used properly, can be extremely effective. So I thought about what, what, what's digital, essentially. What's, what's it, what's, what exists in the form of information um, and is also not high bandwidth? Because um, in 99, people still mostly had modems. So you couldn't, like video was not really feasible in 99. So, but money is low bandwidth and digital effectively, mostly digital. So it's like, what can we do to make money work better? Um, and like money in my view is, is essentially an information system for labor allocation. Um, so it has no power in and of itself. It's a, it's like a database for um, this, for guiding people what, what, as, as to what they should do. Um, and so you can think of banks as a set of heterogeneous databases with, um, that, that are actually not very secure. Uh, and certainly the, uh, the monetary system, the transfer system of checks is not, is, is very insecure, still is insecure. So are credit cards. Um, and, um, and, and it's all, it's, still mostly batch processing and it was in, entirely batch processing that day. So it was not, so payments were, or money was just like heterogeneous, uh, high latency, low security uh, collection of databases. That's what banks are. Um, and so just from an information theory standpoint, this should be something that can be much better if it can be real time, uh, secure, and, um, and if, you know, just very fast. Um, essentially, it's just one real-time database. Um, so it's like, okay, let's try to build that. Um, so that, that, that's what X.com was. And then at, at the time, I also thought we, what we should try to do is just do all the financial things as well, not just um, payments. I still think that's really what PayPal should have done, but whatever, it's water under the bridge at this point. Um, and then there was a company that was formed around the same time called Confinity, which was Peter Thiel, Max Levchin, and, and Luke Nosek, David Sachs, Ken Howard, and a number of others. And um, at X.com, there was also like Jeremy Stoffelman, and, uh, who created Yelp. Um, Roloff Boiter, who then went on to run Sequoia and, and fund YouTube. That was at, was at X.com. So we just had this like two, two, two companies with like a crazy amount of talent, uh, X.com and Confinity. And Confinity started as a Palm Pilot cryptography company um, back when you, you could you'd communicate via the infrared port of a Palm Pilot. <laughs> I remember um, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah one Palm Pilot. So it was like, um, so you, there, you could, you could basically communicate crypto tokens between Palm Pilots using the infrared port and then reconcile them on a PC. On, on a PC. Now, obviously, that's they they evolved to go on the, in the payments direction as well. Um, and we were both in Palo Alto, like literally a block away from each other. Um, 
I think at one point we were briefly even in the same building. That <laughs> 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 was, you know, yeah. Um, so, so we were just competing with each other like maniacs, um, and 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 then we had uh, a coffee on University Avenue, um, and said, "Hey, why don't we just combine our efforts, or we're just going to bludgeon each other to death here?" <laughs> um, so we, we merged Confinity and X.com um, and raised a hundred million dollars in the space of three weeks in March of 2000. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And in April, the market went into free fall. Yeah. Oh. So. The 2000. Yeah. I was like. I remember that. That was insane. And we kind of thought it was going to go into free fall, but we're like, we better get this thing done fast. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're both going to die. So. And and so. so, uh, X.com was technically the acquirer of Confinity, but it was a, you know, 50.1 on 49.9 49.9 or something like that, um, and um, and then there was a lot of drama. There was so much drama at at, at X.com, um, and the, the company was called X.com for about a year, and then we changed the company name to the product name. The product, the product was PayPal, um, but, but all the, the incorporation documents and everything is all my incorporation documents. Who came up with the PayPal name? I actually don't know. <laughs> People call you guys the PayPal Mafia now, you know. <laughs> Teal wrote that in his book. You know, I don't know who did the, 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 the PayPal. I was never a huge fan of PayPal as a name. Um, the, 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 the reason being that I, that I thought it made sense for, for the company to kind of... Um, broader? Be, be much broader. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I mean, if, if, if you limit yourself to payments, then necessarily people want to transfer money out of the system. Um, and as, as soon as they tra- transfer money out of the system, the efficiency of the database drops dramatically because now you're in the traditional banking world. So if you just offer all the things that, if you, if you just basically address all the reasons why people are taking money out of the PayPal system. So you have to provide them with, with checks so that you have a bridge to the legacy transaction system. You got to provide them with a debit card provide them with the ability to um, get a loan and that kind of thing. Um, and, and, um, but these are all ancillary to accelerating the, the velocity and accuracy um, and security of payments. Then, then if I, if basically, PayPal would be where all the money is. Mm-hmm. It would just suck all the money out of the banks and there wouldn't be, the banks would go away. Yeah. So any plan you're going to do with the, the X.com? I wrote, if they just execute the business plan, you know, the product plan I wrote in July 2000. Let's just do that. But they, I talked to them several times, but they didn't do it. So why did you and PayPal kind of part ways? What was really the drama that led to that, you know, separation ultimately? Well, things were very dicey in 2000. Yeah. You know, companies were dying like all over the place. So I was CEO of the, of the combined company, um, and we're we're doing quite well from a growth standpoint. Um, we we're like you know, adding a hundred thousand users a month, type of thing, which back then was a lot. Yeah. Um, but uh, financially, things were were tough, and we needed to raise a financing round. We were also like there were some technical questions around what what code architecture would we go with. 
And then there's also a branding question. Like I said, like I think we we should not use PayPal as brand because this is not consistent with being where all the money is. Um, you, 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 you want a centralized database. You, you, so, so I was kind of against the PayPal branding, and and I and I wanted basically I wanted to do a bunch of things that that seemed extremely risky, and I I'm, I think those things would have would have worked out, uh, but. At a time when companies are dropping like flies, um, and I'm proposing that you know, we do all these things that sound very risky, uh, this is for, this is just much too scary for the rest of the team. You seem to be attracted to crazy ideas that other people are like. That like you know I think the autopilot one is a great example where everyone's kind of trying the spatial approach to self-driving. You know they're doing Waymo for ten years, nobody cares, and you come out and say, hey. We think vision is the way forward and deep learning and vision, you know, uh, will take us all the way there. How do you find like yeah, of course. the courage inside to, I mean, people have to be coming up to you all the time and, you know, thinking that you're an idiot or it's never going to happen. And, you know, how do you find that in yourself to like go through all that uh, resistance and still be confident in, you know, your thesis? I mean, I try to be hyper-rational, so it's not, you know, to, it's just like, if this is, if the reasoning fits and you're not violating laws of physics or something, then that's the thing you should do. So, um, and, and I guess the other day, <coughs> I, you know, if, if we lost all the money, I wouldn't, you know, as long as we didn't lose other people's money, I guess, I lost, lose my money, I don't mind. Um, these things just don't seem that crazy to me. So, like, I think if if, like if PayPal had executed the plan that I wanted to execute on, I think it would probably be the most valuable company in the world. Yeah. Um, it would be called X, but it would be the most valuable company in the world. Um, on the other hand, now that's not all good, though. On the other hand, then a lot of t super talented people would have stayed. Mm -hmm. um, and... Because because PayPal got got acquired by eBay um, not long after, like you know, um, there was like the PayPal coup at the end of two thousand. Eighteen months later, it was acquired by eBay. So, um, and and then but, you know, if you think of the companies that came out of PayPal, the so-called PayPal mafia, YouTube, you know, those Steve and Chad created YouTube. Uh, Jerry Solomon created Yelp. Um, uh, you know, Peter created Palantir and a bunch of other things. Um, um, there's David Sachs created um, this company, and uh, Reid Hoffman yeah. created LinkedIn. Wow, it's almost like all that market cap still exists, but now it's <laughs> allocated on all these other tech companies instead of yeah. X.com. <laughs> yeah, so. In retrospect, like I don't know, sometimes like it's maybe a good thing that uh, X wasn't or PayPal wasn't didn't achieve those things because all these other companies would have at least been delayed um, or may not have existed. There's definitely been kind of a resurgence in interest as we get into kind of cryptographic, you know, money and Bitcoin and all that of like yeah. interest in this idea, you know, and it's interesting. Like software hasn't eaten the banking industry yet. Software's eaten a lot of industries. There's some that it just hasn't, and banking's still there. You know, Stripe's Stripe's eating them. 
slowly. But they're, they're doing a pretty good job. They're, 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 the, the banks are in trouble if, if it's not Stripe, it's be somebody else. And you love code, but you don't seem to be as bullish on Bitcoin. Do you have any, could you break down like why? Because you're talking about this big database that's more secure for faster transactions. It seems like Bitcoin's hitting at least some of those. I'm neither here nor there on Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, yeah. What did you think when you read like Satoshi's white paper for the first time? Were you like, oh, it's pretty interesting. Or... That was pretty clever. It's 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 just like the thing, things. Yeah. <laughs> this, this always gets like the crypto people angry, but there are transactions that are um, not within the balance of the law, mm-hmm. um, and those and there are obviously many laws in different countries. Um, and normally cash is used for these transactions. Um, but but ca- but in order for illegal transactions to occur, those the cash must also be used for legal transactions. You need an, uh, an illegal to legal bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where crypto comes in. So is it kind of the dark net stuff? It, it, it can't be entirely dark because otherwise, how do you buy normal stuff? It, and, and cash these days is used just much rarer. It's, it's hard. It's like increasingly difficult to use cash. Some places you can't use cash at all. Yeah. So there's a, there's a forcing function for uh, transactions that are illegal, quasi legal, and in some cases legal. But it's they've got to have some. It's got to be both legal and illegal. It doesn't count otherwise. Otherwise, you simply it, it can't just be transactions within uh, an illegal economy. Because how do you buy like you know food in a house or something? You know. Something, you, go, you must have a legal to legal bridge. Um, so what I see crypto as is effectively as a replacement for cash, but not as a replacement for as a primary. Uh, not not as I do not see crypto being the primary database. So now this is this is sometimes taken being like I'm being judgmental about crypto, and it's actually I think there's a lot of things that are illegal that shouldn't be illegal. Um, um, but you know, so it's not as though I think that sometimes governments just have too many laws about that. They should, they should shouldn't have so many things that are illegal. Didn't you say like on Mars there'd be less laws? Hopefully. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you still propose a direct democracy on Mars? Uh, I think probably that's the best. That I mean, probably it's the best thing. Mars technocracy. <laughs> the most technocracy. And you want to make laws super short and simple, right? Well, yeah, I mean, like, if people can't understand laws, then how do you, then what's usually going to happen is some special interest is going to bamboozle the public with long laws. Yep. And then the, the laws, like, reading this law, this law is like the size of Lord of the Rings, but a very boring version of it. <laughs> <laughs> like, the dealership thing is just crazy to me. You know, like, America's supposed to be competitive, free market. It's weird, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, anyway, it's just so you want to keep the lower short and have it give them some kind of sunset period so they don't just stay there forever. Otherwise, just accumulate over time and just eventually it'll be unwieldy. So the laws should have some time frame associated with them. Mm-hmm. They automatically go away. 
Um, so, uh, I mean, it's just keep a lot short to avoid trick, trickery and, and sort of special interests uh, that ultimately does not benefit the public. Um, and, and then I think direct, direct democracy is less susceptible to uh, corruption than representative democracy. So, um, you know, corruption just being like, to what degree is this action being taken that do not serve the general, the interests of the population, you know, um, do, do not result in a net increase in um, population happiness as a whole. Uh, so that's, that's, that's why I think probably direct is better. Um, and, and then, you know, just have things in real time. So, you know, if you, if you want to vote on something, you just, you can vote on it real fast. Yeah. Um, probably make it, e I would say, make it easier to get rid of laws than to put them in, um, because these things tend to have a lot of inertia and so have a, have a bias to, towards having laws go away and not be there, well, you know. So, like maybe it, it takes 60% to put a law in place, but 40% to remove it, something like that. Yeah. I, I, I mean, let's try it, you know, see what happens. The bills are extremely long that they pass. No one reads them. <laughs> yeah. The hardly anyone in Congress has read the bill. And if, even if they've read the bill, if you quiz them on the details, they would not. They'll find their page. Like, yeah, it's like, tell me what's, yeah, this, there was no idea. It seems kind of alarming that that's like the status quo and everyone just accepts it, but... Yeah, the, these laws tend to be written by industry groups as well. So that, that, they'll write the law and then, and then interact with the congressional staff. And, 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 uh, but most of the work will be done by the industry groups. And so they're going to write laws that entrench the, their position. It's typically. like the, the, or the players buying the ref, like you were saying yeah, earlier. Exactly. It's that exact. Thing. So you get the regulatory capture of the... Exactly. <laughs> yeah. The players shouldn't be paying the ref salary type of thing. Well, the ref shouldn't be thinking, I'm going to re retire and get paid by the players. <laughs> so, it's kind of amazing that it works as well as it does given all these issues. Um, so, um, yeah, so then. Hey pal, I, I ended up getting malaria and <clears throat> anyway in two thousand one. Um, no, oh, two, yeah, two yeah, thousand one. Yeah, tell us about this—the malaria thing. Um, well, that was you went on vacation, right? Yeah, we're in South Africa with, with Kimball actually. Yeah, it's crazy. And then came back and had like a near-death case of malaria. Yeah, we lived, grew up in South Africa. We we'd go to the bushveld all the time, mm -hmm. to the what you guys call safari. And you just you just had a house in the bush, so you you just go there every every few weeks or so. I don't think we ever took malaria tablets. We yeah. didn't have malaria in those days. I think there was a drought and then a flood and then suddenly there were mosquitoes. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. and so we were we were told to, and we did take malaria tablets. You took you took yeah. them as well, and um, and when you got back, the he was in Stanford and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. Our uncle, who's a doctor in, in South Africa, is like, he has malaria. Wow. And it's like, no, no, he doesn't have malaria. We checked. So 
uh, check again, malaria kind of hides in the body and then... That's why they wouldn't believe it. <laughs> so this was after PayPal got started? Oh, this is 2001. So it was sort of after the PayPal, PayPal coup. So I was, I was on the PayPal board and I was provide, you know, providing sort of product uh, advice and whatnot. But uh, in December, well, late, late December 2000, went on a trip to South Africa, came back January, early, early January 2001, I had a severe case of malaria, almost died. Um, I sat next to his bed for you were sleeping i mean like you're it affected your brain that that harsh uh yeah no it was bad it's was, yeah, it was really bad um so that change your perspective how did it like influence you after that i don't know i i, I, I don't think it changed me that much would you say no, I don't think it did. Recovered and went back to um, yeah. But how many times have you been on vacation? I lost like 50 pounds, though. It was great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so no more vacations, though. <laughs> well, yeah. It was, uh, it was, it took me like almost six months to get back to normal. Um, wow. So, uh, and then, so in 2001, um, I was thinking about, you know, what to do next, and, uh, and um, I thought the, um, you know, this is like, okay, sustainable energy, like basically electric cars, solar, um, space. Uh, and then a friend of mine asked me, you know, so what are you going to do next? I said, well, you know, I would love to do something in space, but I didn't think anything of, there's anything that a private individual could do in space. But um, at least I'm going to go on the NASA website and find out when people are going to Mars. Mm -hmm. And I go on the web NASA website, and it's nowhere to be found. Yeah. And so I was like, well, this is pretty weird. Um, and then I discovered that it was actually a NASA policy not to talk about it. Um, really? Yeah, at the time. Huh. Why, why was that, do you think? Um, what I was told is that uh, when George Bush the first uh, was... Um, he, when he was elected, he he said in ninety he asked NASA to put together a plan to send people to Mars mm. in ninety days. They came back with a plan, and it was five hundred billion dollars. Oh. Um, and uh, it says, "Well, that this is like political suicide." So he, then, after that, talk of manned missions to Mars were banned. Um, that's what I saw. Yeah. Mm. So. The, Anyway, so it's like, well, you know, maybe there's something that can be done here to get the public excited about going to Mars. And if, if I get the public excited, then they will vote NASA to have more funding. Mm -hmm. And um, so the original idea for SpaceX was just to have a philanthropic mission to Mars. Yeah, actually, it started as a graphic of a, of a pot plant. 
just need no just problem. need to get the pot plant to Mars. You know, it was like an inspiration. Sure. Just, just a, as a as a as a way to prove to the world that it could be done. Uh, yeah. So the mission was called Mars Oasis. It was uh, seeds and dehydrated nutrient gel that would hydrate upon landing. You get this great picture of green plants on a red background. Um, you're like first sort of life as we know it on Mars, and the you could also learn a, you know, a lot about what does it take to keep plants uh, alive and have a little miniature greenhouse on on surface of Mars. Um, so that's that's why I initially pursued as as like a way to basically increase NASA's budget. That was it wasn't let's create a space company. It was how do we get NASA's budget increased so we can go send people to Mars. Um, and I was so trying to figure out how to get this thing launched, and I. Um, the, the rockets, the European and US rockets were too expensive and I couldn't afford, afford them. So um, I went to Russia to try to buy some ICBMs uh, in 2001, yeah, literally. Um, and uh, they, they kept raising the price on me and it was quite being quite difficult. Um, and I said, I, you know, I could afford to pay like, I don't know, $9 million for ICBM, but not not twenty because I figured we need to do two of these missions because odds are good that one would fail, and then it could have a, a negative impact potentially. Um, so that was pretty weird being in Moscow trying to buy ICBMs in two thousand one. <laughs> That's amazing. How do you yeah. negotiate to buy an ICBM? Yeah, I call up the military and say. Well, you know they they got to they got to get rid of these things anyway because of the arms reduction treaties. So it's like if listen, if you're going to throw it away, I'll buy take it off your hands. You know, <laughs> um, they have to. It was like SS eighteen Denver. Um, uh, it was the biggest nuclear missile in the Russian fleet, and uh, but anyway, they're going to you know decommission these things. So. Um, why, why not just tell me them instead? Um, and, and then they, every, every time I talked to them, the price would go up. And I'm like, this is, this is not good. Because you know, so even if once we do a deal, we're probably going to get shafted afterwards too. And if <laughs> this is the pre-deal shafting. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, it's, what's going to be after? Or it's, you know, when I've, after I've given the money, then it's not going to be good. So... Uh, so that I, I yeah so I, I, and then I started looking into it as like why rockets cost so much and, and so there's nothing fundamental about why they should cost so much if you add up the materials and say if you you know it's not like the raw materials cost that much you really just need to figure out a smart way to get the materials in that shape um, and and then you need we need to make rockets reusable so like any form of transport if it's not reusable it's extremely expensive mm -hmm. you know if, if, if cars were single use um you know and you need a round trip you, you know if you bought a car for twenty thousand dollars then your round trip will cost you forty thousand dollars <laughs> that's true <laughs> that's true no it's crazy so it's the same thing is true for aircraft and boats and rockets and everything so uh so they were the rockets were expensive even as expendable things but then they were also not reusable so there's no way we're going to have a city on Mars unless we can have um, reusable, low-cost, reliable rockets. That's fundamentally the issue. 
so so I came to the conclusion that even if this Mars Oasis mission was successful, it would still not result in the go- it, w- it would not materially further the goal of being a multi-planet species because uh, the rocket technology was not good enough, um, and it was not getting better. In fact, it was arguably getting worse. So, so the real thing that needed to be solved here is reusable rocketry and lowering the cost of access to space. And that that's so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try to do that. Um, so then I got SpaceX started in early 2002, basically. Um, I, was, I was living in Palo Alto at the time, but most of the engineering expertise was in Southern California. So that's why I moved to LA. Um, Did you ever have any like even inkling of imagination that you could be doing, you know, a dozen launches a year and being contracted with NASA? <laughs> Is that even like it? I thought that was where I know I thought we had, you know, 10% chance of success or something like that. You ended up being chief engineer, right? Yeah. Because like no one wanted to give up their secure jobs with URI and something Not at the yeah. beginning. I, exactly. I, uh, I actually tried to hire, but it, it basically, there have been a number of attempts at doing a, a private rocket company or commercial rocket company, and they're all, all really they all failed effectively, um, and then that's to to the degree that it was like a joke in the aerospace industry. Like, how do you make a large portion large fortune in the rocket? You know, start with a yeah. How, how do you make how do you make a small fortune in in the rocket industry? Start with a large one. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's going to be small. <laughs> yeah, they told me that joke so many times. I just jump to the punchline, you know. Uh, so the yeah, it's, it was very hard to recruit people because uh, I had not built any physical hardware before. Um, so it's, and, and I kept being called internet guy. <laughs> for the longest time, for ages. Uh, finally, st- I made, for the first 10 years, they were calling me internet guy. Or basically, an internet entrepreneur yeah. slash fool. <laughs> He's trying to start a rocket company. What of an idiot. That was generally how it, how it went. So it was quite hard to recruit people. And, you know, especially if somebody's got like a secure job at, you know, Boeing or Lockheed or something like that. Um, then trying to recruit them to be, you know, chief engineer of a solid rocket company was hopeless. So basically, no, no, nobody, nobody who was who was good was willing to join, and there was no point in hiring somebody who wasn't good. So uh, ended up being chief engineer, um, you know, which is yeah. So the, the the first three launches failed, and probably if I'd been better, then I, we would have gotten to orbit sooner so uh, it took me a while to learn all these things so from books or books and talking to people did you go to Utah and talk to anybody like at ATK Orbital or- oh yeah I visited ATK yeah uh, well uh, Orbital was is, uh, Dallas right Virginia yeah. Um, so yeah I visited ATK uh, visited Orbital um, and they, Orbital had had a success with the solid rocket-based uh, Pegasus, mm-hmm. um, but, but they'd also gotten like an eight-launch deal from DARPA, yeah. 
so you know, like okay, if you got if you're starting off with basically an eight launch deal from DARPA, that's a, a good situation. I we did not have a launch deal from anyone. Um, and Pegasus is a, 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 I mean, there's some clever engineering with Pegasus, but it, fundamentally, I think launching rockets from planes is not sensible. Yeah. Um, it it sounds like it would be a good idea, but it's not. Um, and then e even Orbital went away from doing that with their, as soon as you get past certain size, they went to ground launch. Yeah, I was reading somewhere that um, ATK, well, Thaikal, Morton Thaikal, they, they were doing snowcats, they were doing ski lifts, and they sold that to the man who made the DeLorean. He, really? Yeah. I just read that in their Wikipedia. I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. What to come around. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, right, so... Yeah, so we've got SpaceX going, um, and that was very difficult. Um, we got the Falcon 1 rocket built. Uh, it was very simple. It's the simplest overall rocket that's li liquid fueled, so that it had the potential for reusability, um, for, for useful reusability. Um, and then, yeah, we had three failures. Um, finally got to orbit at the end of 2008. So. That was incredible. Yeah. Going down to Kwajalein and watching. Yeah, you wrote it like a blog for a while. Yeah, I actually still have it up there. It's uh, it's, little, and it's, a, it's an old, old blogging platform that Google still keeps alive. It's called Rockets dot blogspot.com I think it's going to get a lot of traffic soon <laughs> yeah totally send it check it out it's all there it's uh, yeah. photos and photos of, of uh, there was one photo of, of Elon picking up a, a, a satellite he, we launched the rocket and the rocket exploded which was very 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 sad everyone was super sad people were like pouring their heart and soul into the rocket and the satellite was I think a, a the U.S. Uh, Navy or uh, uh, Air Force Academy. Air Force Academy, and it yeah. it was thrown out of the rocket and fell through the roof of the hangar. Well, well not it, this is like where you really think. Yeah, yeah, hangar, exactly. It's like a like a like a stand-up tent, and small tool shed. Yeah, it wasn't supposed to do that. Like the size, <laughs> maybe the size of this room. Uh, the, 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 I mean, the rocket it had. This is the first launch failure, so the. Uh, it, it had a, there's a cracked aluminum beanut on that, that cracked during, during liftoff and created, so the engine, there was an engine fire. The, this, this wouldn't have been the end of the world, but there was a, um, one of the, the helium lines was a steel mesh overwrapped with like, with a Kevlar sleeve, uh, and it melted the, the, the sleeve, the, the, the um, in, and so we lost pressure, uh, pneumatic pressure which caused the engine valves to close so uh, about 30 seconds after liftoff the engine shot itself off due to the engine fire and then it, it went it went ballistic and and, and basically smashed um, in, in the rocks just a, a couple, couple hundred feet offshore um, and when it when it's when, it was quite a big explosion actually <laughs> Um, in that explosion, the satellite, uh, which was in a fairing, went through the fairing on a ballistic arc back onto the island, 
smashed through the tool shed roof and onto the floor in pretty reasonable condition. <laughs> like it wasn't totally gnarled. Um, <laughs> reuse it? So we, we, we gave them back their satellite. <laughs> so, so like, we didn't lose your satellite, but may need some repair. But it was so improbable that the satellite would come back. Um, <laughs> we had a couple more failures after that. Um, yeah, 2008 was a particularly difficult year because we had the third failure um, in 2008. The Tesla round, financing round collapsed. Oh, such a nightmare. And I got divorced and it was just frank. I think 2008 was... Bad year. <laughs> really, really bad. Yes. Bad year. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone could... I, th I think 2018... I think 2018 was worse. What's up with eight? Well, with the Model 3 ramp, right? Oh, there were so many things that happened oh, in 2018. Yeah. So much drama, it's insane. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, sorry, so, this is, we're, we're in 2002, starting SpaceX, um, moved down to LA, um, and it was just it was pretty fun in the beginning. Like, generally, startups are pretty fun in the beginning. Um, and, and then you go through the, you know, chasm of doom. Uh, <laughs> chasm of doom. The yeah. trough of sorrow. The trough of sorrow, exactly. Yeah. It's rough. Despair. Yeah, it's usually always like, everyone's like super optimistic and excited for first, <laughs> first year or so. And then the then things start to go awry and the, there's usually many years of grief before this finally day dawns. Um, so yeah, so it's like yeah, 2002, um, and then about uh, 2003 is when um, uh, Rosen and JB Straubel called me up and said, hey, we wanna have lunch. Um, I want to say Harold Rosen, I think that's his name. Um, but he, he, uh, he really had, um, he was a pioneer in space technology and electric vehicles, um, which is an you know, odd crossover. Uh, and he'd done something called Rosen Motors, which is like sort of an electric vehicle company. And, um, but he, he'd also been pioneer in geostationary satellites. Uh, so. Uh, you know, he called me up and said, hey, let's have lunch. Uh, so we had, we had like lunch at uh, like Smith & Wolensky or something in in El Segundo, where SpaceX started. Um, and so Straubel and Rosen were talking about space stuff and then started talking about electric cars. And I said, oh yeah, you know, so I was going to be working on electric car technology at Stanford. and." Uh, and then uh, JB said, uh, you know, we should uh, take a drive in the T0 from AC propulsion. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, I was like, yeah, you know, because the, the, the timing is, is like lithium ion batteries was really like the critical breakthrough needed for compelling electric cars. Um, and so I was like, okay, I'll go try out their T0. Um, 
which had specs similar to the, what we eventually brought to market as Tesla Roadster. So then, I, so, yeah, so I got I got a ride in the T zero, and then I tried to convince um, Al Kakoni and Tom Gage to commercialize the T zero. Now the, the T zero, and there's like lots of stuff online about it. Um, it, it you know it didn't have doors or a roof, so like clearly you need to add those things uh, or any safety systems. Um, and it was very unreliable um, because it was just like sort of a proof of concept, basically. I heard it was basically like hand assembled. You guys really had trouble scaling it. No, it's. I mean, it literally didn't have doors or or a roof <laughs> or any airbags or an effective cooling system for the battery, um, and it was not safe um, and it was very unreliable. <laughs> it would break down. Like you, it needed to be. Baby, by an engineer, or it would not, you can use it. So, um, but nonetheless, it did get like zero to sixty. I think under you know, under four seconds, uh, two hundred fifty mile range. Uh, it was enough to convince you that it was possible. I mean, I I, I knew it was possible because if you go from um, the energy density of lead acid to um, to lithium ion, you've got about a 4x energy density improvement. So if you've got if you've got say a 60 mile range with lead acid, you're going to have about a 250 mile range with with lithium ion, with the same weight. Um, so, but it, it was it was cool to see it in action with uh, with AC propulsion, um, and I, I so I, I tried hard to convince those guys. Like I really pestered them a lot to going to to commercialize the the T0 um, and they just did not want to do it um, weirdly the thing they wanted to make was uh, an electric scion and I'm like you guys nobody's gonna pay seventy thousand dollars for an electric scion okay <laughs> that was their idea seventy thousand dollars for an electric scion I'm like this is not gonna work okay you will sell like 14 of these things you know and I'm like, I kid you not, I have like the email trails and these, yeah, I mean, I think they're still, still around. So, um, in fact, but I, I even say, listen, I, even though I think this is the dumbest idea ever, I, I will, I will pay, I will fund one tenth of it. <laughs> if you can find nine other people. And then I think the only other person they could find here would do it was Sergey, Sergey Brin. So it's like, okay, Sergey and I are the only ones willing to do this, I think. And so they didn't actually get it off the ground. But and I, I said, it's going to fail. <laughs> but at least it's, it's something. Um, and, and so then eventually I said, I'm like, listen, if you guys are not going to commercialize the T0, do you mind if I do it? Uh, and they're like, no, yeah, that'll be totally fine. Like, okay. Um, so, so then I was gonna. It's like, okay, so I'm gonna go do this with with JV, and we'll we'll go commercialize, create a commercial version of the T zero, and and then um, Gage and Kakoni said, well, you know, there's some other people who also want to do it. Do you want to maybe team up with them? Um, he said there were two other groups that wanted to do it. And I was like, okay, sure, you know, this, maybe this is a way that I can have my cake and eat it too, you know. 
Uh, I think that's the last word. Never, never works out. God damn, try to have your cake, cake and eat it too, doesn't it? <laughs> this one's gonna be easy. No, I mean, well, I didn't think it would be easy, but it was like, I thought maybe I can allocate like 20 to 30 hours a week and just work on product engineering and then other people can do those stuff. But I don't even like doing other stuff anyway. So um, that didn't work out. So, um, so that, then um, Tom Gage said, he said there were two teams, but I only ever met one. And that was uh, Everhard, Toppening, and Wright. Um, but like the thing that is really bugs me about them is like they, 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 Everhard in particular, the worst guy I've ever worked with. And I want to make a note of this. He is literally yeah. the worst person I've ever worked with. <laughs> and I've worked with some real douchebags. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> to be number one <laughs> takes a lot. <laughs> It's not easy. His version of the story is like he, is that out of the blue he pitched me on on fund, on funding his electric car company and 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 he convinced me to do it totally false mm -hmm. okay I was like I'm creating an electric car company it's like the engage said well maybe you could team up and it's like okay well maybe that that might be a, worth worth doing and and so. The, the, the company ended up being basically five people. This is right, the toppening, uh, you know, um, Everhard, Straubel, and myself. And, and so it was the five of us. Um, and the, like, toppening always tries to write, write right out of the history books because they had a huge battle and they made me choose which one was going to be CEO. It's right or, or Everhard, and I talked to JB, and I was like, which one? Because I really did not want to be CEO. So and they're like, okay, well, both have issues, but maybe Wright has bigger issues than toughening. That's what JB said. So maybe, you know, lesser of evils. I was like, okay, fine. I got to make a choice here because the two of them would not. They would not. They refused to be in the same building. So I was like. Uh, A lot of drama. But Tezza has so much drama. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you know, it's not like the. I said, like, you know, you know, lesser of two evils. So it's like, I said, you're right, sorry, you know, not that I didn't think he had good points, but I gotta, if I gotta pick one, I, and I don't, I was trying not to be. CEO, I've got to make this rocket company work. So, anyway, so then made, uh, you know, it was like, right, you know, it's like, I had to leave then. Anyway, um, so we got the, basically, we, 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 the, we jammed a AC propulsion powertrain and battery pack into a Lotus Lease. Um, With the first prototyping, like really just jammed it in, you know, um, and 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 um, in retrospect, this was not a good idea uh, because the the car ended up weighing like like sixty percent more than in the lease or on that order, um, and we didn't have enough volume to put the battery pack, 
and, and we had to meet all, we invalidated all of the crash tests because the weight distribution was different, it was heavier. So none of the crash tests were valid anymore. We had to redo the airbags. The air, conditioning, air conditioner ran off a belt fan. So we didn't have a belt fan, so we had to have a new air conditioning system. So we had to change the HVAC system. Uh, and so basically in the end, only about like, I think six or 7% of the parts ended up being in common with the lease. Wow. So, and, and we went through a lot of trouble trying to shoehorn everything in there. And it, I mean, it's a cute car, but it's 10% too small. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then the cost ended up being crazy. Um, and, um, yeah, and then, and then yeah. There was there was an audit of the costs of the 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 the, the production cost of the roadster by one of the investors that joined in two thousand seven, and um, and then they 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 called me up and said, hey, the the numbers that Martin is telling you that everybody's telling you about the roadster are totally false. Oh boy. Uh, and I was like, what do you mean? And like he says, no, we just did an audit. There, it's more than twice of what he's saying. The, nice. Yeah. Like we would have to sell this car for a quarter million dollars in order to make to not lose money. I was like this is insane. Oh. So anyway, then he we obviously had to fire Everhard. Uh, there was no choice about that. Uh, yeah, and then it turned out he not only had he misled me directly, but he instructed others to also lie. No. Yes, when I say like somebody is like the worst person I worked with. Yeah. Mm. It was pretty bad. Yeah. So, um, but SpaceX also hadn't gotten to orbit that time. So I was like, man. So then, so like, okay, I asked, um, what is the name? Uh, Harris. Um, remember the guy? Um, he, I'm blanking on the name. Yeah, we brought in the CEO. Interim. Uh. Yeah, he 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 ran like a manufacturing company. Um, I mean, he seemed pretty smart. The, pro- the, pro- the problem that I found with Tesla was we were t- we were a startup in Silicon Valley, building a car that was really manufacturing and materials engineering, and it's really like all the talent was for you would think we, we, there was probably talent you know in De- De- Detroit or Japan. But if you took any of those guys in to run Tesla, they would run out like a car company and then it would be destroyed. Well, they had no idea. You can take somebody who's running a giant corporation. You just could not take someone from a massive company culture and have them do a startup. And yet you couldn't find anyone in Silicon Valley who knew, who knew enough about making cars. And so we kind of found a middle, middle of the road one who was, he was, an, he was an expert Flex, in manufacturing. Flextronics, that's right. The ex-CEO of Flextronics uh, was an investor. Um, and he he agreed to just become join as interim CEO, and this is uh, 2007. Yeah. Um, but I mean, Tesla was a company you tried so hard not to be CEO of. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But the the thing is, this is misinterpreted. If I say that it's misinterpreted, it's like I somehow don't love Tesla, which I do. Uh, it, it's just like trying not to go insane. Uh, with work, yeah, you can. You, being CEO of a, of a of a real startup is eighty hours a week. Being CEO of two is one hundred and sixty hours a week, and there's yeah. only one hundred and sixty nine hours or something of sleep of of, 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 of one hundred sixty eight hours a week. So, like, you just can't physically do it. 
yeah, I mean, the pain level is extreme. So uh, that's, yeah, I, mean, was, I tr tried quite hard uh, not to, to be, to, you know, um, but it had to be uh, no, no choice. That or Tesla would die. So, so that, yeah, so Everhard got, was fired in July, 2007. Um, and he was, he was, he was, at the time we didn't know he'd instructed other people to lie. So we thought he was just, you know, it wasn't as bad, but once he left the building, then we t it turned out, no, he'd actually orchestrated uh, a, a massive deception, which is quite bad. Um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, he also said he came up with the name of Tesla Motors, Motors which is false. That was uh, created by a guy in 95. Um, and, and moreover, he knows this because we went to great length. We had to buy the trademark. Yeah, exactly. So he can come up with the name. It was, it was trademarked in 95. Um, <laughs> so it was like the whole bullshit backstory of that. Um, but the, the, the guy, we almost, we almost had to change the name of the company because the guy who owned... Tesla Motors uh, wouldn't communicate with us, um, and so eventually we sent the nicest guy in the company. No, who's weirdly Martin's best friend, which I don't understand. But Mark Toppening, super nice guy. I like Mark a lot, actually. Yeah, you can't not like Mark. It's impossible. Um, he's a super nice guy. So we sent Mark to go sit on the guy's doorstep and not leave until he <laughs> <laughs> until he agreed to at least negotiate with us or something. He talked to us. Um, and then we ended up buying the trademark for seventy-five thousand um, dollars. Yeah. Um, <laughs> was he the one who owned the domain too? No, that was a whole different nightmare. <laughs> but the, no, the domain guy that took us ten years to buy that Tesla.com domain. Um, man, and he, it was a, it is I think still an, um, like a networking engineer at Juniper. Uh, so. Yeah, that was, and that cost us like ten million dollars. Yeah, that was crazy. Like, just the guy just held out. Yeah. Was he just sitting on the domain, or was he using it for something? It, it was impossible to. No, he wasn't using it for anything. <laughs> um, just holding the name. It's like Twitter handle Falcon Heavy is being used. <laughs> We're fighting for that one. <laughs> yeah. So man, that was took us ages to buy the Tesla condomain. Um, but we were going to have to change the name to, to be um, something else. And actually, I, the, the lead candidate was, for, for, was, was Faraday as the name. Because Faraday invented the electric motor, mm -hmm. and then uh, Tesla perfected the electric motor with the AC induction motor. So, it was, um, so it was, if, if we couldn't do Tesla, we would do Faraday. And then, ironically, a competitor was later created called the Faraday. Faraday, yes. A startup from, yeah. from China, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, did you guys have a Faraday a logo or anything? Were you that far down the No. Um, we didn't really even have a Tesla logo until later because there's nothing to sell or anything. So, um, it, the, the, in the end, the, the Tesla logo and the Tesla font. Um, uh, was done by m me working with uh, basically a, a little firm. That's why the Tesla and SpaceX. Yeah. There, there's some similarities between the the, the, the fonts, and uh, that's because 
just done by the same people. <laughs> um, yeah, I spent a lot of time on the Tesla and SpaceX fonts. Get the little things. <laughs> That's cool. Do you want to eat that? Yeah, sure. Excellent. All right. Awesome. It would be much easier if the, if the world was flat or if you're, not, if you're in a flat situation. As soon as things are not flat and you've got the, 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 the world is like it has undulations and curves and, yeah. and then your, the car can be at any kind of, at any kind of angle. Um, and then if you, if you accelerate or brake, it's actually going to tip a little bit. Yeah. You've got sort of pitch and your compensation. Uh, it's, it, that's where it gets really tricky. Yeah, I mean, they're doing just amazing work. It literally just blows my mind every time, like there's an update like you think it's like wow i can't believe it's this good and then it just gets better like the big one was the faster lane changes like is you uh, push right. the turn signal it's like like immediately it's yeah. really awesome that's so satisfying proof yeah and, love you know, that. i was kind of just like before i was like okay it's not that good but it feels good because like i can't believe a computer is doing this then we got the faster ones and i was like oh my god it was so bad before <laughs> like you know yeah I mean, it'll, it'll be able to just do crazy maneuvers, like like a high-speed chase, technically. Because um, it's, it's, you don't always want to bias the thing to be conservative in any in the actions that it takes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, but there's, there's quite a significant foundational rewrite in the Tesla Autopilot system that's almost complete um, as really? well. Yeah. And what, what part of the system? Like perception, like planning, or just like um, it, it, it's it's instead of having uh, planning, perception, uh, image recognition all be separate, they're 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 being combined. Um, so uh, yeah, it, I don't even understand what how, what that what that means. <laughs> Effectively, like the you know the sort of neural net is absorbing more and more of the problem. Right. Um, beyond simply the, um, is this, is, if, if you see a, an image, is this a car or not? Or, or what, you know, um, it's, it's kind of, what, what, where does it, what do you do from that? Um, 3D labeling is the, the, the next big thing where the car can go through a scene with eight cameras and, 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 and kind of paint a, 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 paint a path and then you can lab, label the path in 3D. Um, this is probably two or three order of magnitude improvement in labeling efficiency and labeling accuracy. You know, two or three orders of improvement in labeling efficiency and significant improvement in labeling accuracy. As opposed to having to label individual frames from eight cameras at 36 frames a second. You just drive through the scene, re rebuild that scene uh, as, as a... 3D thing with it's it's like there might be a thousand frames that were used to create that scene, and then you can label them all at once. Is that related to the dojo thing you mentioned at the autonomy day? No, dojo is for learning for yeah. training the neural net. That's like when you're trying to build the neural net that you ship into the car. Yeah. Dojo speeds that up by hardware accelerating it. Yeah, exactly. Um, Are you guys is that up and running yet or? No, it might be. We might have the first one at the end of this year. Um, 
but next year, I think it's very likely next year, maybe this year, um, but it's essentially meant to absorb massive amounts of video uh, input um, and, and then, uh, and then um, tra train against vast amounts of data so that it can be used in the inference engine in the car. So it's just like a human, really. It's like, how long does it take you to learn a subject versus do a subject? You know, it's like hard to learn, say, calculus, but once you learned it, then you can, you know, integrate something fast or something. You know, it's like, it's a, it's, a, it's really the same, yeah. same basic thing. Yeah, I mean, that'll just really tighten the feedback loop. Like, at some point, it just gets impossible to catch you guys. I mean, like the rest of the people haven't even really like started the rest of the auto industry and like the feedback loop is just getting so tight with autopilot now it's just like makes it a lot easier i think they, i think it will they will catch up eventually uh, well at least they will catch up to where tesla is now i, I don't know i mean things like like for example we're talking about maps and directions and how today like um uh, computer-based navigation is is a trivial, considered trivial. But you know, back in '95, it was not trivial. Right. Yeah. It was considered very hard, um, and the compute power you had was was tiny. So like, the, the the code had to be super tight. Um, can't couldn't have fluffy code if you're, you know, trying to execute something on like a 386. You know, like very very puny amount of memory and compute. So. Um, so now it's, but but now maps and directions are are, are easy. Um, I think in the, at some point in the future it might be a decade or something. Then autonomy will will, will seem easy. Yeah, I mean it'll obviously be commoditized in the long term. Yes, it will it will, it will seem easy in ten years. But there will be a long stretch there where it, it, there's, there'll be vast differences between cars. Well, and I have, I have the, the auto industry. It is used to slow rates of improvement. So, um, you know, it's there's still not really a car yet that matches the original Model S. Maybe you could argue like yeah. take two thousand twelve. Yeah. If you look at like the EPA ratings, it literally is just all below. Yeah. <laughs> so that was that was twenty twelve, and it's twenty twenty. Uh, so it's it's still like pretty hard to get a car. Let's say that's there's certainly there's there's not a car available at the price of the Model S that has the capabilities of the Model S of 2012. It's kind of exactly what you were talking about with the Elise, where you're like, oh, we'll just put a battery in the Elise, and that kind of showed you like, okay, we really need a ground up electric design. Yeah. <clears throat> and the rest of the industry I mean, hasn't done that. I mean, the, 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 like the 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 sort of founding principles of Tesla were basically completely wrong. Uh, <laughs> so the premise going in is like it's not going to be that hard you know we'll just take the Lotus Elise it's a, you know, a nice light, lightweight car and we'll take uh, AC Propulsion's uh, drive unit technology and we'll put them together and we'll have an electric car and it'll be great this sounds pretty easy yeah. except uh, the AC Propulsion technology uh, could not be uh, industrialized like it was like basically handcrafted electronics yeah. with an analog motor controller. Yeah. Uh, and so depending if it was hot or cold, <laughs> your car would respond differently or not at all. <laughs> um, and the uh, yeah, motors were hand-wound. It was just like, 
uh, it's like impossible. You cannot scale this uh, technology. Uh, you, you can have like finicky, individually made, super expensive prototypes, but you could. It, it, we ended up using none of the AC propulsion technology. So, um, yeah, so something that looks cool and works well at an individual prototype level does not necessarily scale. Um, and then the, like I said, it was like maybe seven percent of the parts of the original Roadster were in common with the Lotus Elise. It would have been way easier if we started from a blank slate. Um, it would have been a better car. Um, so, but I think like the, the real um, test of, of any given startup is how well does it respond to adversity uh, and adapt and, 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 and just figure it out. You know, so like most things are just, when they start out, they're just, they don't make a lot of sense. But then as long as you adapt quickly, then you can make the company work. Um, and, um, you know, if you say like sort of Confinity, you know, doing, doing Pompat tokens with an infrared port made no sense, but they adapted quickly to online payments. You know, that's, that, was, that was key. Um, and, um, yeah, at X.com, was originally going to buy it off way more than it could chew by trying to do all the banking services, and that also focused on payments. It's like, if we do all these banking things, we're going to need a banking license. The banking license is going to slow us down. We're just focused on payments. So we can just get a payment, uh, you know, license from, from the state. And it's just like 50 bucks or something. And you can be a money transmitter. <laughs> um, <laughs> literally. And so you're just going to adapt quickly. Um, you kind of need to be naive, though. If you had known as much about manufacturing, you might not have done it. Um, yeah. Yeah. It would have been. It would have been difficult to. I, I guess if you know the outcome is going to be good in the end, sure. It sort of depends on how much foreknowledge do you have about it. it manufacturing is, is insanely difficult. Uh, it's underappreciated in its difficulty. Yeah, no, that's totally true. Yeah. Uh, even making the roadster, which you know, we only like peak made about six hundred roadsters in a year. Um, but you know, call it like t ten a week or something like that. You know, ten or twelve a week. So, you know, if we, if, if two got made in a day, that was a big day. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, Tesla's making over a thousand cars a day now. What, what I find amazing is from start to finish, a car is made in forty-eight hours. Yeah, depending on what counts, start to finish. Yeah, it depends. On what you, but but. You can see the rolled aluminum in one section of the factory, and you can see the cars coming out the other end. And it really is astounding. And, and yeah. cars have been built for a long time, but but this is just astounding. It's still when you you don't appreciate when you're driving a car how much goes into the level of detail, the ten thousand parts yeah. that come together, the shaping of everything. Ten thousand unique parts. Unique parts. Wow. I mean, the pack um, alone is several thousand cells. And it all comes together with people that are s skilled. But uh, you know, skills are changing as as things become a little bit. There's more. There's more autonomy, but it's not. It's not autonomy is not perfect. So you 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 do need to have a lot of people there, and um, and th these cars have to be perfect. I mean, it's yeah. just yeah. Uh, just yeah. Call the, if given how much complexity there is in a car, it's remarkable that cost as little as they do. There's there's so much that's in a car. Um, so so what sort of processes do you remove? Like you know first principles type thing approach from the Elise to like the Model S, right? Was it a massive jump there? 
Yeah, I mean, it's gigantic. Yeah. Tesla had never made a car, <clears throat> made a full car before. Um, the uh, Lotus made the non-powertrain portion of the, the Roadster, and then Tesla built the battery pack, motor, um, power electronics, charger, uh, and then put, put it all together at the end. Um, and the final assembly was actually at an old Ford dealership in Menlo Park. <laughs> that was, um, you can see some of the stuff in Revenge of the Electric Car. Yeah, I've seen, seen that. Great movie. Oh, yeah, it's great. It just gives you crazy perspective to look back on it. Crazy. We need a third one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the idea of having a car, like a car assembly, tiny plant in Menlo Park of all places. <laughs> <laughs> and that was just because we, we, we managed to sublease the, the Ford dealership closed down uh-huh. and we managed to get it like this um, deal from Stanford because it's, the Stanford's going to redevelop it. And they, so they, and, and they, they're, we figured they'd probably take it way longer than they expected to redevelop it. So we said, well, you're not bringing it to anyone. Like, can we pay you like 50 cents a square foot and you can uh-huh. kick, us out, kick us out whenever you want? And, um, and it was this actually huge dealership wow. and it had enough room to do final assembly of the cars. So we just did final assembly of the cars there. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And, and the, one of the most absurd places to build cars on earth is Menlo Park. So no test track or anything, just the road outside or something? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that, we, we'd actually, the early roasters were very unreliable. So, uh, we generally, uh, put about 50 miles of just dri- normal driving. Oh, so just wow. drive around the Bay area. Uh, with somebody following you, in must have got some crazy down. looks from people, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what is that? Yeah, but we put 50, 50 miles in each one of those cars because they just have a lot of things that would break down in the first fifty miles. Um, so, um, and then, um, yeah, battery production was in San Carlos. Um, yeah, so man, that was. There's just a lot of detail and and all that. But going from the roadster to Model S was. A massive leap because uh, the, the the Model S is quite a sophisticated sedan where we Tesla built the whole thing as opposed to just building a powertrain and um, yeah so <clears throat> you know competing against like Mercedes BMW Audi type thing um, so that that was that was a massive leap of, of difficulty um, we, we did get the new me plant but really that just meant we got a box yeah, because uh, they stripped the plant of, of all the, the, the good equipment. <clears throat> the only equipment that Toyota and GM left behind was the stuff that um, that they could not use anywhere else. Wow! So they only left the most chunky, broken pieces of equipment behind. Um, we managed to use some of it, um, but but yeah, in, in the paint shop. Um, I mean, some of the things were literally not even worth the scrap value. <laughs> so, so it was like not worth it to call the scrap metal dealer. What'd you do wow. with it? Then? We made it. We we made a lot of those things work. Oh, you did. Yeah, plastic injection molding machines, and we just made them work. Wow. Um, and the paint robots, we mostly made those work. But the assembly, the the, the body production line had to be made new because that stripped. The, there was just nothing. So we made the body production line for Model S was uh, created from scratch. Um, yeah, and worked out but it was very difficult um it was also, also in the beginning the the top suppliers would not work with us uh, so, or, or we would get like their d team because like who, who wants you know if if they like they got all these customers like they got you know 
the big car companies, they got like Toyota or they got, you know, Audi and W, Ford as customers and, and a startup who, now you're in, you're in the supplier's position, which team are you going to assign to this startup that everyone says is going bankrupt? <laughs> you're going to assign, assign the interns and rejects. <laughs> okay, it's not going to be your top team. We have the same thing with our Your top charter. team's going to go to like Toyota, <laughs> you know, your big customers, the top team. So we would get the worst team usually at the supplier company if the supplier would even work with us. You think that influenced you to vertically integrate more? No, it was vertically integrate or die. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. And we, we tried outsourcing. The battery production originally was going to be made uh, at this uh, place that made, I think, barbecue grills in Thailand. Um, <laughs> I read that story. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, man, they, they have no idea how to make, make a battery. And, and, and I, I was like, this is crazy. We're moving it to um, back to our headquarters in St. Carlos. Um, and we're just going to make it here. Because... Uh, they're basically, once there's a massive amount of work going from a prototype to production, mm-hmm. um, and you, so you need a fast feedback loop with engineering. And if if, if that feedback loop is all the way out in, in Thailand, it's just no way. It's, it's, not, it's not like it's not like it's if you have an existing production line that you already know how to make it in volume, that you can move, mm-hmm. but you cannot create a production line that never existed that's super far away from where the engineers are. It's gonna. It's a recipe for disaster, um, and also the, the cells were coming from Japan. So they go from Japan. They go to, to Thailand. They go through customs. They'd be waiting. And that, then they'd be go, going to a battery pack. Then that battery pack would be sent to England. Then Lotus. If this, is a, this, is, this is these are all things that got changed. Mm-hmm. But the supply chain, like let's say there'd been a problem with the cells, you'd only find, if the supply chain was changed was so long that you'd only find out that it didn't work five months later. Yikes. Yeah, and then you have five months of, of scrap inventory. So this is a recipe for a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that got moved to uh, San Carlos. Sh- cells shipped directly to San Carlos, put it in a module, figure out why the module's not working, fix it, make, put it into a pack. <clears throat> like the original reason why the Roaster battery pack had, like, I think it was like 16 sort of blades, was if was one, modules if if one of them didn't work you could pull it out and put another one in because <laughs> that, that happened um, then we then yeah so we, you don't really need modules in my view should just go from cells to pack at this point but um, yeah it was a very difficult thing going from Rosa to Model S the fact that like the Model Three still has modules is kind of vestigial it's vestigial mm-hmm. yeah. Um, it, because it, the, the modules in the Model 3 are not actually interchangeable, mm-hmm. so there's no point in having modules, really. You just have a, we, should, we should just have a pack. Um, was that done to just save cost then, or, or some other reason? It, it started off because <laughs> it, it's, not, it's not a sensible reason. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the reason that there were uh, cells, modules, and pack goes back to the early roadster days where would make a module, that module would have uh, problems, and so then you could swap out a module. It's like a, like a server rack. The idea was like, you know, if you have a bunch of servers in, in a server room and one of the servers flakes out, you can pull it out and put another one in. So without having to replace, so, so you could replace a small fraction of the pack instead of the whole pack. Um, then, then that concept just carried forward into model S, X, and three, but without the, with the, the original logic no longer 
exists because the modules are not interchangeable. Yeah. You can't just swap out a module. Um, uh, so, we're, but these things just have a lot of inertia. <laughs> um, so we really want to move to no, no such thing as a module. It's just cells and pack. Yeah, because I mean, initially they had the uh, battery swap facility, right, at Har Harris Ranch. Yes. Uh, I mean, and then the Model Three, I don't think it had that capability that you could actually swap the whole pack out quickly, right? Um, or I don't correct. know. If that was, it does yeah, not. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. SNX still have the ability to do a fast pack swap. Right. Um, but it, I mean, things essentially evolved in the same direction that phones evolved. Mm -hmm. You know, for a long time, phones had swappable battery packs, mm -hmm. and now yeah. basically yeah. nobody, almost nobody, makes a phone with a swappable battery pack. Definitely. Um, as soon as the range gets past a certain point, then I agree. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. But but this was far from clear at the time of, des of designing the Model S. So we went to a lot of trouble to make the the SNX pack capable of a, of a fast swap with quick disconnects and bolts coming in only from the bottom and that kind of thing. And then we did that demo where yeah. we swapped out two packs faster than somebody could yeah, pull a gas tank. That's amazing. Um, it's kind of ridiculous to me, like taking the battery out of your car just in you know harris ranch and they put a new battery in and you come back it was kind of like it's good that supercharging got a lot better yeah it, it was just way better to to in, increase the range of the pack and have better faster charging mm -hmm. um so um but, but this, this 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 debate which seems obvious in retrospect was not obvious at the time definitely um and and um you know back then i think at least I don't know, a lot of phones had swappable packs because mm -hmm. um, you know, this was sort of would have been designed in you know we, we had the first prototype out in 2010 for the Model S uh, so back in 2010 let's say the, the thought process going into this in 2009 would have been you know at a time when I don't know maybe most phones had swappable packs or something like that you know the iPhone was like 2007 or something iPhone 1 um, mm -hmm. and um yeah. So that. So then, it, it it doesn't didn't make sense. But but, you know, companies have a lot of momentum. So the the SNX pack is still a swappable pack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like it was like too much trouble to change the design, and Model Three still has modules, even though it shouldn't have modules. <laughs> um, to some degree, like, like what you'll see in any given product is that the the. The, the errors in, in the, the structure of an organization will manifest themselves in the product. So, you know, that, that's where, well, we have a module team, so we have modules. Like, wait a second, we just combine the module team with the pack team, and then there will be modules. Um, so generally, the, you, you, the, yeah, the errors in the organization manifest themselves in the product. Um, you, you, you can see where the organizational boundaries are. Mm. Uh, and, and, then, and then you often get like a box in a box. It's like, wait, why does this thing have two boxes? <laughs> well, because this team wanted to have an enclosure and this team wanted to have an enclosure. And so they, they have an enclosure on an enclosure. <laughs> <laughs> and this is still the case with the, even the model. It's like, how, what a silly thing, but that's actually the case with the Model 3. Model 3 battery pack has a, a top enclosure and the car also has an underbody. Yep. What's the point of that? That doesn't make any sense. Because <laughs> the pack, the pack team wanted to have an enclosed battery pack, and the the body team wanted to have an enclosed body. Yeah, it makes sense. But you don't need two. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Awesome. So this is all this, and, 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 put, and putting the tuck cover on the battery pack is a big pain in the neck. So it adds mass and cost and stuff. So that should definitely go away in the future. Um, lots of brackets on brackets, that kind of thing. So, so you survived the production hell of the Model 3, which was um, pretty intense. I mean, that, that was like stupendously difficult. Um, and I mean, I think it's sort of, um, Tesla, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I think it might be accurate, is the first company, car company to reach volume production, I think in, a, on, in 80, 80 or 90 years or something mm -hmm. like that. In the U.S.? Yeah. That's wow. Yeah. And it's a harder time to do it, for sure. Yeah. The complexity of, of like, what people, ex the, the regulatory requirements and the minimum expectations for a, a car at this point are dramatically more than they were 80 or 90 years ago. And the place you chose to do it, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was, it was a super difficult one. Um, I mean, there's, like, there's also a car company startups but that's doing the prototype is the easy part Do, building the production system is a hundred times harder yeah so i mean that's where you see the, the things fail like yeah they've been over the course of the last century probably thousands of car company startups most of which people have never heard about like, you know occasionally they'll hear about something like a delorean or a tucker most of them this there's there's not even a footnote um and it's it's because of the difficulty of production, um, and then and here's a real important point that is not well appreciated. This is a point that should be advanced by short sellers, but I've not seen it. <laughs> I've not seen it articulated, but it should be. Um, the, the 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 incumbent car companies make uh, most of their money from selling spare parts to their existing fleet mm -hmm. at high margins. Mm -hmm. Um, and they'll sell the new cars uh, either at, at, at de facto zero margin or even at a loss. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, printers and cartridges or razors and blades. Mm. You, you sell the ra razor at a loss, sell rates at a profit, sell a printer at a loss, sell a uh, cartridge at a profit, or, or video game consoles. Um, you know, the actual cost of, say, an Xbox is $600, but you can buy it for three or $400 because they make it up on, in the games that are bored. Yeah. Yeah. So, this is this this now. They, so if you're a new company, you do not have a fleet. Mm -hmm. so, you, so you have no fleet with which to subsidize the the sale of your new cars. This is the this is the primary reason there has not been a successful car company startup in the United States. This is the primary reason. Um, so. Um, because the incumbent car companies have 80% of their fleet outside of warranty or something like that. Maybe it's 70%, but approximately. Like if a car lasts for, say, 20 years or something like that, and the, the warranty is for four years, then it's 80% out, uh, out of warranty. So um, even if they stopped selling new cars, they would still, um, the, the, the profit would increase. <laughs> so according to Edmunds, dealerships make 20% of their revenue, but... 50% of their profits on service. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and, and the, the, the car companies themselves will often make more than 100% of their profit on, on, on selling spare parts. Wow. Yeah, so, so 
if, if like if the point at which they're making say 110 percent of the profit from selling spare parts, it means that they're actually selling a new cars at a loss. So this, this this is a this is the very difficult thing to overcome. Um, in order to overcome it, the um, a, the a car has to be significantly more compelling than uh, other than other vehicles, such that people are willing to pay a premium, um, and that you can actually be um, positive cash flow, um, aspirationally profitable, selling new cars, not simply selling spare parts of the fleet. Um, so, I mean, for Tesla's fleet is probably 10% of Tesla's fleet, or something less than 20% is out of warranty, whereas 80% of the other car makers is out of warranty. So, um, this makes it very difficult. Uh, also, electric cars need much less servicing. So, uh, that that's another difficult thing. So, so this, this is this is the main. This, this should be the main argument advanced, I think, for why a car, car a new car company cannot be successful. The, the main one. Um, and so, yeah. Then, like I said, the, 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 in order for that car to have car company to have any chance, there must be it must be compelling enough that people will pay a premium. Otherwise, there's no chance. Um, and I think there's actually, in order for a car company to be successful, it has to succeed on two, on two fundamental technology discontinuities. One being electrification, and the other one being autonomy. I think not even even pure electrification by itself is not enough. Mm-hmm. Like, so you can, yeah. okay, mm-hmm. um, but like since the moving production line, there there have been two major technology step changes, being electrification and autonomy. And the combination of those two is the only, th- is, that's the only opening for a new car company to make it. Yeah. It makes sense. I mean, it, it, without autonomy, you'd probably have to wait for EVs to reach price parity. With, with autonomy, you can drive many more miles and bridge that gap easier. And it's like, well, Tesla's moat in some ways, or uh, not moat, I guess, but um, like Tesla's advantage in many ways is bigger because like these are two such different technologies that are happening at once that you've been working on while nobody else has. So it's like that much harder to replicate now that it's been accomplished almost. <clears throat> it's very hard for, it's very hard for any, any, any new car company to enter the market. Um, they have to make a very compelling product. Um, meaning they have to have some significant technology advancements in the electric drive drive train and the battery pack, um, and just generally with the car itself. Um, and then the autonomy has to be very compelling. Autonomy in and of itself is enormous. Um, so the, both of those things, a um, company must be successful in doing, or they will uh, end up in the cemetery. So that's that's the real challenge of it. Um, yeah. Well, even with like the, I mean, the software updates. I mean, that's something that no other manufacturer can really even get right. They can't do it over the air. You yeah. have to take your car in to, you know, because it doesn't work, right? So that's a core component of providing uh, updates instead of getting your revenue now from the dealership and uh, spare parts and stuff. You can actually send software as a service. You know, we actually did a whole yeah. podcast on this. Uh, well, our goal is to minimize service costs. Yeah. Um, whereas the other car companies, this is, I wouldn't say the goal is to maximize service costs, but it's certainly not to minimize it. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> well, car companies also 
have two different businesses as the dealerships where their business is actually just service uh, and and um, uh, I don't think it's anyone's surprise that that people don't like going to their dealer I mean it's like uh, it's it's because their incentives are, are actually not aligned with the with the customers ascent, uh, incentives they their goal is to bring you back as often as possible yeah there were the dealerships incentives also misaligned with the the car companies in the during the warranty period because the war, the car company has to right. pay, pay for the, the the warranty the the service during warranty. Uh, so it's so it's that they have a a conflict of economic conflict conflict of interests. Um, yeah, the car companies cover the warranty costs, but the the dealership uh, makes profit on the servicing. So they want to maximize servicing even during the warranty period. It's almost like the economic factors you just mentioned have created like complacency where there is no innovation because, you know, nobody can just start a car company. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's like Schumpeter's creative destruction. You know, there's like innovation tends to come from new entrants to an industry. So if there's if if an industry has formed an oligopoly or something like that, then the, the forcing function is, is weak for innovation because innovation tends to come from new entrants. Yeah, this is a problem with rockets. There's not, not a lot of new entrants, so innovation forcing function is weak. But it's encouraging to see rocket booster land. Yeah. And everyone is like, wow, we can innovate maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's actually been surprising how little innovation has been on the, and despite SpaceX showing reusable rockets and landing and reflying these rockets many times, the, and we're like, come on, you know, just <laughs> copy it <laughs> or something. Same with um, Tesla. I mean, yeah. yeah. Tech works. Just do the same thing. Didn't like Chinese space companies started putting grid fins on their rockets? I think there's some Chinese rockets that have launched with grid fins. Um, well, you can really use any kind of fin. Um, Grid fins just are more predictable across a wide range of speeds. So from hypersonic through, you know, supersonic, transonic, subsonic, uh, they're they're just it's quite easy to predict the um, behavior of a grid fin. And the center of pressure of a grid fin doesn't change that much. Whereas if you have a a, a, a you know fin fin like a wing looking thing, that you'll see quite a big change in where the center of pressure is. Uh, across a wide Mach regime. Yeah, either one would work. <laughs> the shuttle didn't have grid fins. <laughs> what do you think about Rocket Lab's approach of trying to um, use a helicopter to recover the first stage? Uh, yeah, um, I think that's going to be harder <laughs> than it seems. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Uh, but the, the, their booster is quite small. So the, the the issue with with helicopters is you run into a max load problem. Like the lifting capability of helicopters is not that great, um, and that lifting capability drops with altitude, uh, and then the range of helicopters is also not that great. So, so then you end up having to have the helicopter on a ship, um, and then if in bad in heavy weather conditions you can't take off. Uh, so that you're gonna you have to be your weather constraints at the launch point and the catch point are um, end up limiting your launch availability. Mm. 
and then, then you, you got to it's 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 dangerous. You know, you've got somebody in a helicopter with, with a you know pilot trying to catch this thing coming out of the sky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's doesn't sound too sane. It, it, there's a, there's certainly the potential for somebody you know something to go wrong. Um, whereas if you have a drone ship, there's you know if, if it smashes into the drone ship, it's not a big deal. If it smashes into a helicopter, that's a big deal. Sure. Yeah. So you know overall, I've been you know that that's it. I've been pretty impressed with Rocket Lab, and they're ma- they're making they're making a go of it. Um, and they're they're gonna you know, do reusability, which is important. It's fundamental. Um, do you guys still see yourself doing that city to city travel in thirty minutes one day? That would be awesome. I want to do yeah. <laughs> yeah. more stuff. Yeah, I think that can for sure can be done. Yeah, for sure can be done. It, it is it is loud. Uh, that's that. It's really a noise is the the, uh, the biggest concern there. Both taking off and landing. When it comes in for landing, that sonic boom is loud. <laughs> um, it, it's like, yeah, there's actually two sonic booms. Uh, so it, it sounds like somebody just discharged a double barrel shotgun in your backyard. So <laughs> it, it's not like it's breaking windows or anything, but it's like, it, it'd be pretty annoying if it's happening on a regular basis. <laughs> you know, that's basically. <laughs> What it amounts to. So then you have to do it offshore. Um, so I think we'll do. But it, it, can it be done? Definitely. Um, and it's the fastest way to get anywhere based on known physics. So, and I think the economics can be made to work as well. So that it would be competitive with international air travel. It'd be exciting. Wow. That's yeah. true. Wow. Yeah. I can't wait for that. I yeah. travel a lot. Like. To Asia, like minimum like twelve hour to fourteen hours. Sure. Yeah. Will you try to keep most of the launches around the equator? Just or would it matter? Like, um, it it doesn't matter a ton. Um, it 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 matters if you're going east to you know, if 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 you if you launch east, you have the advantage of the Earth's rotation. Mm-hmm. The closer you are to the equator, the more you can take advantage of Earth rotation. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you fly west, you're actually counteracting Earth, Earth's rotation, so your delta velocity that you need is is higher. Um, but you can go in either direction. Um, I think one of our one of our upcoming launches is actually a retrograde retrograde flight, so it's going to go against the Earth's rotation. That'll be that'll be fun to watch. <laughs> yeah. But if Starship is going to launch so many times a day, how do you going to Produce all these raptors because mm. like, we've been we've been touring uh, the SpaceX factory in Orthon, and you're doing you're making them by hand, right? Are you going to automate any of this? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's being made by hand. The uh, being assembled by hand, maybe, but yeah, that's what I mean. Sorry. Uh, we have a lot of metal printers. We've a whole yeah, that's incredible. Those 3D printers are crazy. 3D metal printing, wow, yeah, love it. I mean, I think SpaceX is pushing the envelope for metal printing. More than anyone else, uh, or at least that's what the suppliers tell us. <laughs> so, but, but we also have a foundry uh, that, that so cool. we, we do our casting of exotic parts for a Raptor. Um, we have a lot of CNC machines. It's a very complicated uh, engine to build. Um, a Merlin looks like a toy relative to a Raptor. It's very simple. 
but we're, we're all going to make a lot of rafters and starships. So are they all going to be made in the States then? Yes. Okay. They'd have to be. But They'd have to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we can get simple ingredients from outside the U.S., but other than that, we're not, we're, we're, we're not allowed to transmit uh, any sort of... NASA IP. Yeah, NASA. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We're, no, no, no like anything that like is a sophisticated element of a rocket engine, we're not allowed to transfer out the U.S. Or, or yeah, rockety mm-hmm. stuff is weapons technology. So, so just a starship when it's assembled will fly there and come back. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> well, technically, there's a lot of rockets at the bottom of the ocean that <laughs> push out, <laughs> and they have. This is true. So if your city-to-city rocket travel works, does that mean Tesla doesn't need to build an electric airplane? Man, <laughs> building an electric airplane has a lot of difficulty associated with that. Or what about the VTOL jet? It's a lot of difficulty associated with that. I, I, I gotta make sure, well, it takes a massive amount of effort to do any one of these things. So you can't do them all, it's not possible. Um, say, say, oh, how you allocate the resources? What's the best thing to do? Um, making a VTOL jet can definitely be done. Um, doing electric aircraft for sure. I mean, all, all transport will go electric except for rockets. Um, yeah, everything. I guess why it seems exciting is because if Tesla's leading in energy density and battery technology, then the logical next step is like, if somebody's going to build an electric airplane, it's the company with the best, lightest, most efficient batteries, right? Yeah, it's it's not, it's just, it's hard to, it's an entirely different regulatory regime. Um, like there's, there, are, there aren't any car companies that are also aircraft companies. So why don't they just make aircraft? Actually, you know, it's kind of funny. There was like some conspiracy theories on Twitter because on Instagram, Tesla's yeah. category, oh, yeah. it said automotive and then somehow aircraft and got boats, boats got added. Yeah. Like at the Cybertruck yeah. event, they yeah. changed yeah. 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 Like, cyber truck making a boat or an airplane. <laughs> this is like your Wikipedia. <laughs> I think it's incredibly hard to bring an aircraft to production and meet all of the regulatory uh, requirements worldwide. It's a very difficult thing. So it's not like we could, it's something that could just be done. We would have to not do a bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. It's not like there's like a ton of unallocated resources that tells them like, oh, what should we do now? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a, a constant resource starvation. So then it's like, why don't you do this other thing? Okay, well, we're starving for resources. Then what will you not do? Well, it seems like that's what's so exciting is now that the business has kind of taken this next step, the resource like starve is kind of changing or hopefully slowly changing. I mean, an airplane, like maybe another car or something. It's not. Yeah, not necessarily in airplanes, but I'm just in general, it seems like the financial help means you can spend more on R&D. You can invest more like. That's not how it works. It's not like if you just had more money, you could spend it effectively in R&D. But if, if there was a if there was a factory producing excellent engineers, that would be true. <laughs> where, where is this factory? <laughs> it doesn't exist. Um, so it's incredibly difficult to find the, the right talent, integrate them into an organization, and have it be work effectively. Uh, it's not a money thing. Um, 
it's just hard to find there's just a short number a small number of people you know more engineers especially um there's just a fundamental limitation on exceptional engineers Mm -hmm. there's just not that many so given like these constraints and all the things you have to do could you tell us like a little bit about your thinking on how you prioritize And the prioritize, prioritizing has usually been out of desperation, not choice. <laughs> it's, it's not like, oh, let's sit back and well, how should we spend these resources? <laughs> this damn thing isn't going to work. We're gonna, if we don't make it work, we're going to go bankrupt. So, <laughs> you know, and then, so we better make it work. Um, I mean, um, the, the Model 3 program, there were so many mistakes that were made with the Model 3 program that the entire company had to be devoted to fixing the Model 3 production system. So, uh, you know, we, we, we took everyone off solar, almost everyone off um, battery pack, power wall, power pack, and that kind of thing. Um, anyone who was working on, you know, uh, Roadster, Semi, everyone yeah. stopped doing that, work on Model 3 or there won't be any Tesla. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. You really bet the whole company to get to this next level. But, you know, I mean, I have a Model 3. I couldn't afford a Model S. So, like, I'm very thankful that you guys decided to bet the whole company. There was no choice. Uh, it's like either you, you, you got you to gotta get to volume. It's a chicken and egg situation. You can't make the car at an affordable price unless you have high volume. Unless you have high volume, you can't get an affordable price. Yes. So now what do you do? Yeah. How do you bootstrap this thing? You, you basically just got to take a giant flying leap at high volume and hope you get to the, you know, grab a cliff at ledge with your fingertips. Yeah, it seems like... It's like that Indiana Jones where you're like running down the thing and this, yeah. because that's the, here's what it actually feels like. It's like that, what Temple are doing, whatever, you yes. know, where it's like, there's a damn boulder yes. chasing you down. Okay. Shoot. And there's a big hole in the ground. Can you make that game? And you're going to yeah. jump across the hole in the ground. And if you slow down, the boulder's going to crush you. Oh this is what it feels like. It's, it's not like, I wonder what you wish we'll do. It's like, it's boulder, hole in the ground, and then jump across or you're going to die. So that's basically... Uh, or you know get the situation um, you, you know like at, like at this point maybe we could say like okay what shall we do at this point um, you know the the biggest problem we, we have to solve right now is just having production on each continent mm-hmm. um, because it's insane to be making cars in California shipping them to Europe and, and Asia this is I mean, as it is, making cars in the Bay Area is pretty absurd. Um, yeah. And then you also got to ship those cars halfway around the world. Um, so you got all this finished goods inventory on the water that's very high capital carrying cost. And you can finance part of it, but not all of it. Um, so, you know, then um, you got the transport costs, you got tariffs, uh, um, you got you know, every time a car gets loaded or unloaded, there's some potential for damage. It's mm-hmm. not zero, mm-hmm. you know. So it just creates a lot of cost, and 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 then it's hard to manage. And like the factory complexity in California is is amplified because you've got several different regulatory regimes. So you're building 
it seems like you're building Model 3, but you're actually building several versions of a Model 3 depending upon whether it's going to China, Japan, Australia, uh, Europe. Uh, then you've got goddamn right-hand drive. <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, it's like, it's put the, the, every now, everything's going to go over here. Which is some random bureaucratic decision 100 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right-hand drive, left-hand drive? This is a mega pain in the ass. Put <laughs> <laughs> in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then all these different languages, you know, you can't have like warning labels in English if it's, they don't speak English. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what it means. <laughs> um, so there's stickers all over the place for, you know, 17 different languages or whatever it is. Um, and that's all in one factory. So, so, so the complexity amplifies the difficulty of manufacturing and then um, you kind of get into the cycle where in the first uh, month in the quarter or let's say first six weeks in the quarter you build cars for uh, Europe and Asia and you get them on the boats Um, and then for the next say three weeks you build cars for the east coast of the US or North America and then the final three weeks you build cars for the west coast so the, the deliveries early in the quarter look look very very low and they spike exponentially at the end because basically all the cars arrive at the customers at the end of the quarter mm-hmm. yeah. um, and, and they were like we, then, then we'll have these conversations we've got to get out of this wave like, and they're like well, they'll punish us very badly if we get out of the wave because the financials will look horrible yeah um, so then we end up okay we'll do the wave again uh, <laughs> and so that so now we've got a factory in Shanghai that should uh, that that'll go a long way towards alleviating the complexity and the cost. Um, you know we'll have far fewer goods that we need to to finance that are on boats. Uh, we get, you know, once we get the factory going in, in Berlin or Brandenburg, technically, which um, close to Berlin, <laughs> <laughs> um, then then. Then that this massively reduces the complexity of production and, uh, and 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 reduces the fundamental cost of the vehicle. So th- this will really de-stress the company a lot. So local production will break the wave. Lo- local production will break the wave. Um, I, I mean, just like we've had the number of times that headlights have come up as an issue is 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 crazy. We've had to ship cars to Europe many times where the the supplier of the headlights for the EU headlights couldn't match rate, uh, and and the, or made them wrong or something, and, and then so we may have to make cars with US headlights, ship them to Europe, then ship a bunch of EU headlights to Europe, change them in the port because they're not allowed to exit the port until they have the EU headlights. Oh my God! So that was the port problems we would see. That's one of the many port problems. Mm. Yeah. Wow! Wow! So I, I, it, like like first year quarter last year was. A tragedy of mm-hmm. errors. <laughs> Not a comedy, but a tragedy. <laughs> um, and Belgium went on strike, oh. right? And in, in and you're like, what do you mean the Belgium's on strike? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. The so, <laughs> a, a lot of cars were coming into Zeebrugge, and and we're like, okay, now what do we do? Nothing. Oh, yeah. Just cars are stuck. Because okay, but they, then they're scheduled to go off strike on this other day, and like okay, so then we can move things. Great. Um, 
You know, it was just so many, wow. so many things. And the cars got stuck in the port of Shanghai because they had the wrong sticker. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah, they put yeah. the wrong sticker. Did the sticker man? Get you, you, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <it's> like, <laughs> <laughs> it's better off like just made it in China. Absolutely, China. for sure. Like, totally agree. You don't have to spend like two weeks, three weeks on the ocean. Go there and wrong sticker. And you have to wait yeah, and replace. Painful. People don't appreciate Giga Shanghai yet completely. N- not until recently. Not, 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 not yet. Not yet. I not don't think people fully. have realized it. Not fully. <laughs> it's extremely important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and these like shipping times are like 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 technically it's possible if everything goes right you yeah. can get the the cargo in two weeks. Yeah. But the ships don't don't leave every single day. Exactly. And and then you also have to queue. You you can't just. Instantly load the cars. <laughs> so the cars, you have to like send like two thousand cars to a lot in like you know Port Oakland or Port of San Francisco. Yeah. Accumulate the cars, move, then they get moved to another place. Then they get loaded onto the ship one at a time. Oh my god! And then finally the ship leaves, and then, and then like sometimes the ship has problems. Yes. And, and, and you know, like the storms or something. Storm and custom. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, like it's, it's you not have like, to go through every single. Yeah, it's so much drama. Then this, this ship, Too many ways to go wrong. Like, so, yeah. And then like yeah. the ship's engine broke down. It's so just like oh stuck somewhere. <laughs> and, and yeah. But it's great. Like right now, like everything roll off the production line, go directly to the delivery yeah, yeah, center. It's, great. it's wonderful. So I have another question. It's like, from your perspective, how do Chinese public perceive EV? Well, China is very pro EV, I and mean, it's the biggest EV market in the world. Um, uh, I think. It's, it's like half of all the EVs are made and bought in China. Yeah, something like I that. Right now, yeah. Yeah. So um, now, now the China uh, sort of um, subsidies for EVs mm-hmm. have dropped considerably, yeah. so that did cause a reduction. It helps a lot. Yeah. Well, it, but it, the, the, EV, the EV incentives were very high in China, yeah. and now they're much less. Much less. They're like a third of what they used to be, or, or less. Yes. Um, so the so that's caused some decline in demand, as one would expect. Um, but I st- still, China is still the biggest market for EVs in the world, so I think they're very positively received. Wow, that's great. Yeah. So ta- talking about the incentives, because you, I know the uh, the price. There was a small price reduction right in the Chinese uh, Model Three, and then but then the subsidies were the balance. So it's actually not. It's not um, any impact on Tesla in the profit, right? Um, no, I, I, I don't think so. Um, well, uh, yeah, I think the um, obviously, the, the, depending on what percentage of the car is made in China, the, the parts that are made in China are not subject to a tariff, so that's certainly helpful. Um, we also um, save on logistics um, and. Uh, generally, we found that uh, locally sourced parts in China cost less than in the U- in the U.S. or Europe. So this is all pretty helpful. Um, also, the Tesla got added to the purchase tax exemption, yeah. which the, which all, all the other. This is I'm, I'm not sure if people like realize just how much of an uphill battle Tesla's had to um, sell cars in China. It's been a you know really. We had basically no access to uh, any of the subsidies, and we paid a tariff, and we had to ship the cars over, yes. and every single thing was set against Tesla, and still we made progress and did decently well. 
So I think that there will be much better, a much better situation with local production, not having to do shipping and tariffs and um, and being able to have lower cost local sourcing of, of components. Um, so it make a big difference, I think. Is that your victory dance when you broke granite? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah so that was great. It's a big deal. Yeah, it is a big huge. Um, yeah, just uh, the, the, in terms of just fundamental economics, it kind of makes sense that making cars on the continent where they are bought will be a lot more efficient than making them in California and shipping them around the world. Yeah. yeah. And you can get paid for the cars before paying your suppliers, which seems to not be the case if you're shipping around the world. Right. And that could be a but, huge like friction on the whole kind of cash flow situation, or it has been. For sure, it will sure make a big difference on cash flow because, yeah, it's um, there's just no way to get the cars, especially to Europe, but, but even to China, to get them to customers, you know, um, f- before we have to pay suppliers. Um, so if you're a rapidly growing company, it's it's night and day if uh, if you um, get paid by your customers before you have to pay your suppliers like night and day uh, because then the faster you grow the better your cash cash position is mm-hmm. but if it's the other way around where you have to pay your suppliers before you get paid for customers get paid by customers then the faster you grow the the faster your cash yeah. position drops yes because drop, yes. mm-hmm. you're going to spend more money to yeah, so, so gro- growth yeah. actually causes you to auger into the ground in a situation like that. Um, now, it tells us we had a mixture of both things, where we had a lot of customers in, say, in California, um, and, and that's, that's fast. For sure, we, we would get paid by customers faster than we would have to pay suppliers. But then for cars going to Europe and Asia, uh, there's, it's the other way around. You know? So we, we would have to pay suppliers before we got paid by, by customers. Um, and now we could offset, we could offset some of that with an, the asset backed line, which was pretty helpful, but only some of it, not all of it. Um, so the just the, the fundamental financial health for sure improves dramatically by just having just by having a, a factory on the continent. Okay, we're not talking next door, but <laughs> it's just how many oceans you know. It's like especially Europe was logistically super hard because. We're on the west coast. If we're on the east coast, then then China would be much harder. But if yes. but if you're on the west coast, Europe's much harder because you've got to go through the Panama Canal, or even worse, around you know, Tierra del Fuego, because <laughs> like, sometimes the Panama Canal get backed up, yeah. and you're like this friggin' ship is going to the Antarctic. Okay. <laughs> it's like you just go up to the end, and it's stormy as hell. <laughs> so you gotta send a ship around Chile? Are you kidding? You know, in in the middle of crazy storms, and and then back up all the way, and then like, you know, it is it, oh my god. Um, um, so logistic nightmare. Um, so yeah, it'd be be great to just have have it not get on a boat. And, and cross the Pacific and Atlantic and that kind of thing. So maybe similar to Vincent's question, Ali, what's the biggest advantage in choosing Berlin compared to other European countries? Berlin has the best nightclubs. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Have you been? <laughs> I've been I, went, I went to Bergheim once. Really? Yeah, yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, so for, so for several years ago. Um, <laughs> Um, 
Well, that, I don't know. I mean, uh, I looked at a lot of different different locations, and um, I mean, sort of, I don't know. I we, we could have put it in a lot of locations. We, we needed to move move quickly, and and um, actually, this this place, um, um, you know, it's, it's like whatever. 30 minutes to the outskirts of Berlin, technically in Brandenburg. It, it actually was a place, location that uh, BMW was going to put a plant there. Mm-hmm. Um, so a ton of the environmental work and all of the permits and stuff had already been done. Mm-hmm. And then for some reason, BMW chose a different location. Um, but there's like, I guess, something on the order of a year's work, uh, worth of environmental mm-hmm. Um, you know, paperwork and stuff that's been done on that location for an auto plant. Awesome. Um, so that's awesome. it made it one of the f- quickest places to get going. Um, and the generally, like the, the, the government, lo- local and state government, was very supportive. Um, so, you know, I went there and it's like, okay, this seems like some pretty good vibes. This place, so it's a lo- lovely part of this lovely place. Um, and there's an opportunity for, like, it's it's close enough to Berlin that say young people could still, you know, live in an apartment in Berlin and commute to the factory. It's right. There's a train sta- station. They're actually going to move the train station. It's a small train station, but they're going to move the train station to where you can literally get off the train and be right at the Giga Berlin. Oh, wow. wow, that's great. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Yeah. That's perfect. You could literally just pop right off, and you don't you just walk. Wow. You don't need a bicycle. Um, so then it's like, okay, this is pretty cool. Um, and you know, so, so young people could be in Berlin, apartment, and still, you know, come work at Berlin. And, but if you want to have more of a family situation, the backyard, there's, you know, affordable housing available with, you know, houses with yards and stuff that aren't too expensive. Um, yeah. Um, so it, it seems like a good, good, good combination of factors. Um, yeah, a lot of talent in the area. So, um, oh, it, it sounds cool to Google in. It, 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 it does sound like some some cool nightclub, I think. <laughs> you, know, you could definitely have a cool nightclub that was called that. People were like, yeah, that sounds good. Giga, Giga Shanghai, too. It sounds pretty cool. You know, pretty we fun. should party in Giga Shanghai. Yeah, yeah. yeah we should like a rave cave in the... Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of space around the factory side. Yeah. yeah. But you should have like your own nightclub. Yeah. <laughs> I think that'll be... Who, who doesn't know? Who doesn't know? We should do that. I feel like I'd go for sure work at a company that's got the nightclub. That sounds way more fun. <laughs> Didn't you want to put a roller coaster into the Fremont factory? Yeah. yeah. You still going to do that? I mean, I think that would be pretty fun to do. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think we could just like do, um, yeah, just basically have like, we just needed a, a, a rail that can support like a modified, modified Teslas. And then, and then, yeah. Oh my God. Can yeah. you imagine a plaid? Oh, yeah, just like zip around and <laughs> around the factory in like five seconds. <laughs> Doors would be booked for months. <laughs> yeah, we should get in right now. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, we, we kind of actually in various parts of the factory we have vehicle conveyance systems. They just don't move that fast, but they're kind of like roller coasters that move slowly. Yeah, you can speed them up. Exactly. So yeah, um, 
but yeah, overall I'm feeling pretty, you know, I weren't uh, tempt fate or anything, but feeling pretty good about where things are headed. Um, and, um, I think there's just got like a lot of good things, you know, model Y coming out this year and, um, some exciting announcements about batteries, uh, a lot of progress in autopilot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Boolean, Giga Boolean, um, and, um, and then make your progress on some of the new vehicle developments. Oh, and solar, the solar roof, solar glass roof, getting that rolled out. Um, the Cybertruck got received really well, I think. Yeah. yeah. Did you expect that many uh, orders? Uh, not, no, not really. It's amazing. When I first saw the Cybertruck and I, in, in the Francis Design Studio, I mean, you know, you know, had told me that this was a this was a, a daring design. I, although I think you're the most excited about this design than any design. Yeah, I thought it, I think it's our best product ever. Yeah, and I saw it. I was just taken aback, it, and not not by the design so much by the pure aggression that the truck. Mm. You stand in front of it, and you're like. Okay, I'm afraid. <laughs> you know, it really is like a badass truck. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, it seems like like the a lot of reasons why people buy pickup trucks, uh, you know, in the U.S. is like because it's like the most badass truck. You know, like yeah. like which one's the toughest truck? And you know, it's like what's tougher than a truck? A tank. <laughs> <laughs> like a tank from the future. <laughs> so it's like a. Rider champion, and already five cyber trucks were ordered just the day. Five cyber trucks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just in case the first four are busy. Yeah, and Yeah, absolutely. They just love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's literally like so how do you out tough a truck? You just make a futuristic armored personnel carrier, and that's the tougher than a truck. And I feel like autonomy will probably be very like mature by the time it ships yeah, yeah, too. Yeah, for sure. So, so how many Cybertruck orders do we have right here? Raise your hand. I got one. one. Two. Two. I ordered three. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be pretty special and not look like other things. So, you know, yeah. It looks so cool. Like the first time I show it to my son, it's like, daddy. This is something from Alien. <laughs> that is, this is his first impression. Yeah. It's like, yes, it is. That's that's how it was designed. It was it's like, what's the, you know, let's let's make a future futuristic armored personnel carrier, you know. And so the inspiration board was like literally like you know Blade Runner, yeah. you know, like sort of Mad Max, uh, Back to the Future, yeah. uh, you know. Um, aliens, aliens, you know, they've like, yeah. Um, so, so that's why it looks like the, that. <laughs> yeah, like, like the pre-order number is amazing. Well, it's got to be over like four hundred thousand now, right? I think, I mean, I think it was just so risky, and it just like at first people were like, even people who like were hardcore fans were like, oh, this yeah, when I first rolled out, and then people are like, you know wait, wait a minute, like, yeah, uh -huh. this is kind of amazing i want this you could see it like there was like uh in person you could see it happening really yeah. fast it's like scrolling 
the reaction and then the processing, and then you're seeing all the features and then the range and the price. Those are the compelling things that really like just hit everybody. Yeah, really. the forty thousand was the biggest shocker. Yeah. It's like, oh, people are going to be buying. And, this. and that range too. Yeah. Like it's, it's just no, actually it the sixty nine thousand. 500 miles with 2.9 seconds like come on like, <laughs> dude you have to get it no way yeah, yeah. yeah totally. well Sid loved it too right he did actually yeah yeah this is one of the last things he said actually Let's before. See, yeah. did he have a drive in it and no he saw pictures of it but I think he was not obviously he died recently so he yeah. didn't uh he saw, he saw pictures and he said, yeah, that's great and he said send us a note like he loves it you know that's wonderful yeah so yeah but you know you want you want to have these things that inspire people. It feels different. Not like everything else is like the same. It's like variations on the same theme. You want to have something different. I, I but you said like how many? I wasn't sure if nobody would buy it or a lot of people would buy it. <laughs> yeah, it just wasn't. You know, didn't, I don't know. But, but you know, we, I just told team like, listen, if nobody wants to buy this, we can always make one that looks like the other trucks. That's not like yeah. Yeah, you can always just try it and uh, yeah, just say like, feel. okay, it was a, you know, we could say, okay, it was a weird failure, but now, <laughs> well, now we'll make one that looks just like the others and <laughs> there you go. So. It seems to have captured the whole world though, like elevated Tesla and the cultural zeitgeist in a way that like is so exciting. Like the Travis Scott music video yeah. already happened. Like that yeah, was that so, was cool. I was, was waiting cool. for the first That's music amazing. video it's and like I was like, advertising, right? yeah, so <laughs> yeah. awesome. Really cool. Yeah. Um, it's going to be hard to make that, by the way. So it's not, it's because, it, because it's a different architecture, it's an exoskeleton architecture. So, um, there isn't any cars out there that have an exoskeleton architecture. So you've got to rethink how the, all the internals of the car are done um, so that you can use the external shell as, as, as a load-bearing structure instead of just basically thin sheet metal that is effectively just there for aerodynamic reasons. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you, could you, you could take the, the external, the, the, what's called A-class surfaces of most cars and still drive around with, with, it lose almost no structural value. Mm -hmm. a, they usually go very, very thin sheet metal, so it's it's all end, endoskeleton. So um, there'll be some yeah, some challenges building that. It's a Starship's three. It's a Starship's. Yeah, yeah. So you can use the same steel as the ship. Yeah, yeah. I'd love one of those limited quantity ones. Oh, I <laughs> know. Like so Tim had shout out it out. Yeah, Tim. Yeah. Tim had asked about that. Everyday astronaut. Yeah, he's a cool guy. He's a cool guy. He really knows what he's talking about. Yeah, he does. Um, so, yeah, so there's, there's, there's a lot of you know, a lot of good things. Undoubtedly, be some, you know, setbacks along the way, but it's it's looking looking pretty good. Should we do some closing thoughts? You know, I just remember when I got my Model Three, it was like a difficult time in my life, and it made it easier. And you know, you don't have to buy gas. Car drives you around just makes your life better all of our lives in these little ways like all this struggle you do it you know it, it really makes things better and just makes you hopeful and inspired and you know i just can't thank you and the whole tesla team and uh enough for for all the love you put into the car you know and every day it's just happy because i have a model three that's cool <laughs> i'm glad you like it is this our goal i go so you know, maximize the, uh, make people like really touch people's heart you know, with, with the product. And it's, uh, 
like I think like too many of these companies out there they design these things with just sort of a spreadsheet and sort of marketing surveys and that kind of thing yeah. without saying do you love it you know yeah, do you, do love you the actually yeah. like the product that you're making do you it love touched it? my heart very much right <laughs> um I like thank you for this chance like doing interview with all of us and um as a shareholder and um model three owner um i remember like one time you tweak about your money is first in and will be last out yeah mm-hmm. i was really touched yeah. to see that tweak i think it's like years ago sure like right after one of the shareholder meeting mm-hmm. i was like like which ceo would do this you know mm-hmm. and like um after i bought my model three I'm more believed to the company. Like I ordered a Model Y and then two Cybertruck. truck. I was like, <laughs> I'm a Porsche fans before, and then right now, like he was gonna get a Taycan until he saw the range. Yeah, I I was thinking to get a Taycan. Like why not? Like give it a try. But sure. when you look at the spec, the the range turned me off. Like yeah, and it's obsolete too. already. Two oh one. Like who's gonna buy a for, for 150k as well. Uh, just not talk about money. Just talk about <laughs> yeah. range itself. The spec, it's like, it's not there yet. Yeah. So with like 150k plus, like nobody gonna buy it. <laughs> yeah, so thank you, Elon. And uh, absolutely. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, yeah, well, thank, thanks you guys for your support. It really makes a difference. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't own a Tesla, so I hope, hopefully, I will. Um, in you like, ordered a Cybertruck, though. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Totally true. Yeah. Um, and your shareholder. Are you still in college? Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. yeah, I got to save up. Um, okay. But I will buy one. And I've got the Cybertruck, like you said. Yep. But, um, like, I've made, I've made so many great memories just like through these cars. Like, I've met all you guys <laughs> through Tesla. And this is like amazing, just like what kind of community um, just is created through products that you love. Mm-hmm. And I think that really means a lot. Like, I don't, I've, I think I've never seen people being so excited about a product before. Yeah. And like having this whole family feeling is really cool. cool. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I just want to say congrats, first of all, because I feel like this has been, it's kind of like a feel good moment for Tesla, all that's happening. Yeah. And obviously, thank you because. Like you've inspired all of us. And I think there's not many things in the world that like people get pumped about that are positive about the future. Like I really feel like we need that now. And so Tesla, like bringing us all together has been really awesome and really much needed, I think. Great, this is, this is really cool. I think I'd have to agree with what Gally said, just where Tesla is going. Um, you have a car that's actually making a difference with the clean energy, changing the earth, cleaning things up, I mean it made me excited to see and you're so efficient and you can you actually get things the way you do it you just i don't know you get it done <laughs> and and i trust you and i trust the company and i and it's it's i don't know such a passion it's amazing i don't know i love, don't get get the words out <laughs> we're sometimes a little late but we get things we get it done in the end yeah yeah, yeah. always deliver yes thank you you're welcome no, thanks for your support well i just want to say like how I described this, this podcast, like we kind of, it kind of just grew out grassroots. Right. And, um, I look at you as also part of the community. You're, you're as much third row as all of us. Right. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm really grateful you were able to come on this and also tell the story 
show more people. I hope we can do it again too, because there's I'm sure there's going to be sure. things that come up that we want to set the record straight to, yeah. and and maybe have some celebrations too. So yeah, yeah. Sounds, sounds good. Yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of exciting things. Probably like I said, probably some you know disasters and drama along the way. It's, 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 <laughs> yeah. it's never 100 good. We'll but, be there that helps. So um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's always good to get feedback. Like you know, um, you know, if you would if you're in my position, what would you do? Right. Um, like a lot of times, like I just don't know if something's wrong. I just don't even know it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to, I have to learn it somehow, you know. Um, and then I'll keep, you know, try to figure out, okay, how do we deal with all these different issues? Um, you know, scaling service effectively is very difficult, for example. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so that's like one of, it's like a mundane thing, but it's very important. Definitely. Yeah, I think the mobile service is incredible. And yeah. I mean, I've had, I'm on my fifth Tussle now. Yeah. Um, not the last because I just keep upgrading them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, so I the last one, I, so I have a P100D um, Model S, which is outside right there. And um, yeah, I, I have the, the, I got the license plate, get Tesla. Yeah. I thought, yeah, if you want it, <laughs> uh, I would love to give it to you. <laughs> so yeah, thank you again. Thank you. You're welcome. Cool. Elon, can you sign my Model 3? <laughs> sure. Oh, yeah. And my Model S, too. <laughs> All right, cool. Okay, we All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.